Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We got some stuff about the Cavs lost last night in double overtime to the Bulls. Um, I will defend mine and Mark Price's honor from the hatchet job uh, that I heard on the morning show today in, in response to, quite frankly, which is a very tired argument. I got Danny Cunningham right out of the pocket, energy, uh, the man, the man had a nice argument about anti-Mark Price, and then I just kind of I was not prepared for it, so I'm going to answer for 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 that for that failure yesterday during the show, and for the hatchet job from the morning show. We got combine talk. We got Adam Amin coming up in just about 40 minutes. We got Albert Breer at, at 5:20 as we do every single Thursday. But I got nothing for you on 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 the leap year thing. I, and it's weird. Like every year, I hear the same four jokes. Maybe it's maybe if every year we had a leap day, every year we had a February 29th, the jokes would be fresher. But I or, or like maybe we'd have more content. But I heard a lot of like, well, this guy's 15 because he's only had 15 birthday. I got nothing on that. It, it impacts me not. Other than it makes this this week a little bit longer and. In fairness, the most noteworthy thing about uh, the leap year conversation today is it snowed today, and I was very upset by that. But, and, and just so you know, I'm still wearing shorts. This is not a logical argument, but I'm not counter-programming my, um, my wardrobe with the weather, because screw this weather. This is good fat man weather. At least they're not short shorts. Yet. If it if it snows one more time, it's going to be like uh, Doctor J in 1977. You're going to see everything, and I'm sorry for that. Don't pin it on me. Put it on Mother Nature because this is on her and whatever's going on right now. But whatever went on last night, not great, Bob. I'm and I'm caught in between. I'm not going to ride the fence. It will not span my girth. I'm not going to ride the fence on this. I will land somewhere in the next 40 minutes about the Cavs' loss to the Bulls last night. Um. I, I think this idea that the Cavs should get a pass for last night is a little funny to me. Like, I think, I mean, I think context matters. And I had said last night, you know, like, hey, I need to, we need, to, I don't care about style points as long as you win. And so style points are going out the window and, you know, I'll start worrying about style points again in, in you know, mid-March. As of right now, February 28th turned, nay, 29. I, I just... If they had won that game last night, I'm not. I would not talk to you about how they got uh, out rebounded uh, by nearly 50 rebounds. If they had won that game last night, I wouldn't talk that the same thing we've talked about with Darius Garland at the end of games, bad possessions, just bad decisions overall, bad defensive possessions. I I wouldn't. I, the, I would not be mentioning Donovan Mitchell and whether or not Donovan Mitchell is tired. Right now he does. He looks exhausted to me, especially late in that game. He had a chance to to win the game in overtime. Uh, had a, had an open look at a shot and just missed the shot. I also can't panic about that game specifically. Like if this is to me when the Cavs concern or are you concerned or any of that stuff becomes real, 
it is I'm not gonna I'm not gonna overreact to one game specifically the second half of back to back to win double overtime. Like watching the game last night, do you know what I saw? I saw a team that the second Donovan Mitchell missed that shot, I knew the Cavs were gonna lose in double overtime. Cause Donovan looked at his teammates, he did the oh hey, we got this, it just missed a shot kind of thing. The man was cooked. He was tired. And I you could see from the very first possession of overtime where that Cavs team was. I'm going to go ahead and say that specific to that loss, it comes down to the second half of a back-to-back, and if that thing doesn't end up going to overtime, if Donovan just hits one of the shots early, if you don't, if Jared Allen doesn't foul DeRozan to tie the game late in that game, like there's three or four things, and if just one of those things goes differently, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'll be honest, I have no problem with the Cavs game last night because they win. But man, it was the same kind of frustrating thing. Like, if we just go to last night's game, that's second half of back-to-back. It's uh, February 28th, at least it was yesterday. They're coming out of the All-Star break. Like, I don't have a lot of hot takes on that game specifically when I think the longer that game went on, the less of a chance you really had. And I think their legs just gave out in double overtime, and I think you add to it bad possessions, shots not falling. Chicago got super hot in that second uh, overtime. I'm willing to wipe it all away. A few things, though. Just in the game, just one, I have zero respect for the way the Bulls play basketball. And it's a little rough for me to say that. In about 30 minutes, we got Adam Amin on, who is the Bulls uh, play-by-play man. And I actually really I have the utmost respect for Adam because he is a legitimately good dude as well as being phenomenal at his job. But, like, I don't know if I'll bring this up with him, but DeMar DeRozan goes on the floor every five seconds, whether he's touched or not. Kobe White continues to flop like Anderson Verjao on steroids. Like the whole, just all of, I mean, Nikola Vucevic has just kind of turned into another soft-ass big in the NBA who scores a lot of points because uh, defense sucks. Like, I just watched him. Billy Donovan, honestly, just gives strong chotch vibes. Always has. But now that he's their head coach and they play like chotches, it's even worse. So, like, part of me watched that game last night and just kind of, it's funny, it's not, it's not like some sort of boomerang effect. I grew up hating the Bulls because Michael Jordan terrorized the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's not that. It's not that. It's just this specific version of this team is a bunch of turds. They just don't play basketball in the way that I like or respect. That being said, they got the win last night. Also, do we have to start a counter for Darius Garland's face? I think we have to start. We need a new um, metric, and we need the analytics folks to do a deep dive on this on shots to the face per game. Because I joked about this yesterday about, man, there must be like a some sort of steel plate in his face that just draws people's hands to his schnoz. Happened again last night. Actually, might have happened multiple times. And I just keep watching, and I'm like, okay, I, do all other smallish point guards get smacked in the face the way Darius is? Is this, is this just a Darius problem? Like, I need John Hollinger to get the bottom of this because, or we just need to start finding a way like the 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 face mask that players have when they've like a broken orbital bone isn't enough for Darius we need to have like a like a mask from the um not from the movie the mask but from uh the man in the iron mask but of bubble wrap it is the damnedest thing I anytime and here's the thing you'll kind of be paying attention to basketball and you know it's an NBA regular season game you pay as much attention in the first half as the players do which is not a lot and all of a sudden, I just you just every time I randomly look up, 
It's Darius Garland, one to the schnoz. Give him a heater. And the wild thing is, they don't call it. The NBA referees are like, ah, it's Darius. His face takes a beat, and it's okay. Like, Darius would have to get, like, jumped like it was malice in the palace for Darius to get a call when he gets smacked in the face. Is that slight hyperbole? It's massive hyperbole. The reality is, every t- I don't know if the NBA referees know this, when you get smacked in the face, that is a foul. It's not like, a, well, I didn't mean to do it. Like, maybe this is the dad in me. Like, my kids all the time are like, well, I didn't mean to do that. Yes, but you still kicked your daughter, or you still kicked my daughter, your sister, in the jaw. I, we still have to have a conversation about this. We don't just get to go, well, she didn't mean to do it. I guess it's okay. There's a lot of stuff I've not meant to do. Oh, you know what? Uh, I just kind of walked into robbing that bank. Didn't mean to do it. All right. I mean, he said he didn't mean to do it. What are we doing here? Yeah, he said he actually didn't do it. Okay, well, if he says he doesn't do it, we got to take his word for it because that's how it goes around here. Um, but getting back to the concern, and I'm not going to do the Cavs concern which we used to do at nights when I was working on the night show. I knew they were going to lose that game when they went to, to double overtime. It just, I, I didn't expect them to win that game. So even though I went into last night's game saying, just win this damn game. Once the context changed of how last night went, my expectations changed. There's the thing you say when it's like, well, Cavs versus Bulls, second half of back-to-back, you're the better team, they're four games below 500, you're more talented. Yeah, neither of you is really playing that good of basketball, but you need this win more than they do. That's the kind of thing you say going into the game. Then the game happens. And this is one of those things that I will chalk up to circumstance. What I won't chalk up to circumstance, happenstance, happiness, any of the other stances, is the fact that the formula to losing last night is eerily similar to every other loss or near loss they've had in the last seven games. And that's where I think it's a real conversation. And I think any time, and I I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's just a state of how we, the the dialogue um, with with just teams now. I mean, I, I, you know, every day I see some new, person that's a you know uh, a content creator on social media who all they do is they're like ah Darius Garland's good at basketball right guys like that's not an opinion yeah it's really not there's no analysis in that that's empty calories you know hey anybody else love the Cavs Woo! okay I love the Cavs too I mean hell even sports talk I the, the amount of times I, I hear might when when assessing the Cavs well, it might be time for concern for the Cavs oh Way to go out on a limb there. Way to have that opinion there. You, st- you stick right there. Hold the line, right? Don't don't give in to the people who are like, yeah, but it might not. All right? You just dig your feet in the dirt, and you go ahead and keep riding that gigantic fence you're on. But, like, guys, it's okay to look now. The sample size is significant enough to look at the Cavs the last seven games and go, J.B. Bickerstaff's end-of-game habits are hurting you again. His inability to use timeouts, his inability to draw up actions that actually work, um, X's and O deficiencies, rotational deficiencies. Like, this is where JB's not going to bail you out. So whether it's the organization having to help JB bail you out or whether it is the guys themselves, Cavs are not playing good basketball right now. And it only matters when you're losing games like last night. Style points are out the window. I'm 100% with everybody out there. Content creators, other sports talk show hosts, all of y'all. The style points right now are not what concerns me. But 
If you want to be the two seed, games like last night, and it's not like last night. It is games that you've lost over the last seven games. They need to go the way of the Dodo. The end of game possessions where Donovan or Darius are just waiting to score and everybody's looking around them like, I wonder which one's going to do it. Oh gosh, that, that LeBron type, that LeBron era stuff, that cannot, that's not how this team is constructed. It's not how this team's going to win. I'm getting beat on the boards, especially the offensive glass. It's not going to do it. So if you want to bury your head in the sand until it gets super concerning, I got, I got no qualm in my heart for you. But the reality is you should be a little concerned where the Cavs are right now. Your ears should be perked. And over the next three to five games, the Cavs need to get back to doing the things that help them win 80 of 20, or 18 of 20 games because they're not doing it. Ball movement sucks, especially at the end of games. You are getting beat up and bullied by teams that have no business beating up and bullying you. Those are the, also the same things that lost you in the playoffs. That's why this does matter. That's why we can't just go, ah, it's February 29th. Let's make another leap year joke to start the show. Specific to last night. Once you got into the game, wasn't really that mad about the loss. Once Donovan missed the the shot at the end of the first overtime, I was like, okay. Yeah, that's tough. Like 10 quarters of basketball inside 24 hours is a is a butt ton of of uh court time, especially when you were kind of sluggish at different points over the last two or three weeks. But I think it's interesting, like I really struggle with JB because I I think you saw in the 18 of 20 games the value of the culture that he's fostered and and allowed to grow and helped grow, right? And I, I don't think without the love of their teammates, without Darius, without Evan, I don't know a fair amount of coaches could, could have a, a, a culture that responds the way that the Cavs did. I also think, and I, and I said at the time, and I, I – like I think in a lot of ways the Darius and Evan injuries made JB's job easier because no longer did he think about well when do I play how do I play Darius and Donovan together um, Donovan is playing well Darius is not how do I how do I get one going without the other kind of stagnating and I'm tend right now I tend to believe that Donovan's just tired I don't think he's stagnating. But Donovan has not been as good the last couple games. And I think you saw that last night as the game went on. You know, he even had some of the bad possessions that basically come from the fact that when he and Darius are on the court at the end of the game, the offense stalls in the half court. And it basically comes to um, uh, Donovan, you're going to dribble the ball on the ground and then take a shot? Okay. Darius, you're going to dribble the ball on the, gr- the ground and then take a shot? That's That's... That specific thing is a little bit more Darius, but you know the possessions aren't getting better in the half court at the end of games. That's a lot of why you lost and didn't score enough points in the, the series against the Knicks. It's a lot of why you went from, oh my God, they're a four seed and look how well they're playing, to getting you know cut off at the knees by a Knicks team that just doesn't have those problems. And so I, I struggle. Like, I think... Do I think that JB was hugely responsible for creating the environment that allowed the 18 of 20 wins? Yes. Am I turning this all into JB's why they lost last night? That's not really it's it wouldn't even be fair. JB doesn't um get out out rebounded on the offensive glass the way the 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 Cavs did last night. Um JB does not have the confidence issues or 
honestly, just the strength issues. Darius, I saw him multiple times last night try to go to the rim, and I I probably could have blocked a shot. Like he just he isn't going up with any strength. He's not going up with any. He's not finishing strong, and it's it's noticeable. Um, in the middle of the game, it's noticeable at the end of the game too. So if you want to talk about the bigs and now how all of a sudden the bigs are not playing with the same confidence together, that's, I mean, yeah, we can point to things like the rotation, but overall, I think when I get back to that 18 of 20 winning streak, a frustration that I have is it just seemed like people were saying JB really was pushing the right buttons because they were winning. I, I don't think JB got better with his timeouts at the end of games. I don't think JB got better with his rotations because he, yes, he was playing seven or eight guys. Yes, he was playing Sam Merrill, but not consistently. Yes, he was playing Craig Porter Jr. periodically. Uh, he was doing that because two of his best players were off the court. So I'm I'm torn. I'm really torn with where the Cavs are because I, I don't think they're a bad team. I don't. I think this is a, a transitional moment. But it, it does feel like JB's looking at the players and going, uh, hey, these last seven games, I need you guys to get on right where it needs to be. And the players are looking back at JB like, hey, could we maybe save a timeout when there's like 2.5 seconds left on the clock, like the Dallas game? And it does feel like no one's taking the reins to do the uncomfortable thing. And I understand it's easier to say that, by the way. Trying to go to Darius Garland being like, dude, you're unplayable in the final three minutes of game, that's really tough. And you don't want to kill the kid's confidence. But if you're in, if you're the culture guy, if you're not the X's and O's guy, man, I need you to get through to Darius. And I need you to find a way to get him moments early in the game by himself without Donovan so that he can just get back to playing quickly and not thinking every damn time he's on the court with Donovan Mitchell. I don't see that happening enough. So I'm really torn. Like I, I think there is a catch-22 here where right now the things they're struggling with are being aided by the fact that JB in some ways has his limitations as a coach. There are other times where I think it's the the the, the players on the court are either not being assertive enough, they're not playing heady enough basketball, they might be tired, um, or in the case of Darius, he just doesn't have it right now. And so that's to me why I, I think it's a Cavs issue. And I think it's a little bit of a concern. If we're doing a a, um, a, uh, a one to ten, I'd probably say it's a three, maybe a four. But where you are, this is this is the time in the NBA schedule where you kind of gotta we gotta start to see the things being put together. And over the next three to five games, and and I'm just kind of pulling that specific number out because I think that's right about where you get to middle of March on. But like three to five games, you need to you need to button it up. Because if we're having the same conversations and it's the end of March, even if you're still the two seed, you better hope you get a sweetheart of a first-round matchup. Because you get a, a physical team like Miami in the first round of the matchup, you're you're going to go home that first round. Because Miami is going to take complete advantage. And I saw Windhorse today on, uh, what was that? Was that get up? Talking about Jalen Brunson and Donovan looking yeah, at. Yeah, I okay. believe it was actually yesterday on first yeah. take. And I'm going to paraphrase it and probably butcher it, and apologies to Brian's family if you still live in the area. But Brian's point was, man, Donovan should be really jealous of of what uh, Jalen Brunson has in New York. And I, I think that's a massive prisoner of the moment take. I think if you said right now, and OG Ananobi kind of pushes this to a much more legitimate conversation, 
If you said right now what roster I'd rather take, I'd still rather the Cavs roster. Once we get beyond the Cavs roster, we get to things like the head coach and we kind of factor it all together. Um, but it's not – the Cavs aren't doing this because of a lack of talent. They're doing this because fit issues that have not been resolved and because now you've got two young guys trying to work back to that level. But all this being said, the ball is too stagnant. You are not going to win in the playoffs. And if we are three weeks down the line having the same conversation, it's great li- – it, it is with great likelihood the Cavs are going to be sat on their ass in the first round of the playoffs. And that doesn't matter if you're concerned or not. That once you get to the stretch run of the NBA, it doesn't matter whether you or I or or PD, the digital uh, content creator, who's just like, isn't Cleveland wonderful? Isn't isn't Donovan Mitchell magical? Who has no opinion on the damn thing, but still has fifty, uh, what is it, five hundred thousand uh, social media followers? It doesn't matter whether how good vibes we have. They're going to get skunked if they don't figure this out right quick because two games before the All-Star break turned into seven games in a three and four record in the last seven games real damn quick. Mike, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got? Hey, I'm just thinking about JB, man. It seemed like, you know, they always say, well, when a coach has a lot of talent, that's a good problem to have because he's got to figure it out. But it don't seem that way for JB. It just seemed like he can't figure it out. And what I mean by that, the rotation, you know, just like last night. You know, you ride these guys, man, they, and Donathan had just come back from the All-Star game, so he played an extra one or two games when you look at that. Um, it just didn't, he didn't pull the right strings, man. What, what, he could have brought Merrill and Niang back in, you know, some fresh legs in that, that second part of that double overtime, you know? And, yeah. and, and he could have pulled uh, uh, Okoro and um, what's the guy's name? Uh, I'm, I'm just a couple guys out. Just switch it around a little bit. Bring them. Bring some shooters in, some fresh legs. That's all. He didn't do that. I don't know why he just stuck with the same uh, five guys. Mike, we we appreciate you, buddy. Thank you very much. 216-474-0092. 216-474-0092. And at Nick Wilson says, social media reactions on X powered by Shabin Jewelers, Cleveland's premier jewelry store. Uh, case in point, I know they went to double overtime. Uh, Donovan played 44 minutes in a double overtime game. If you were on the second half of back-to-back, you've got Donovan already looking a little um, tired. Maybe you don't have to play Donovan as many minutes in the first half of the game. Maybe even in the third quarter, you can bring down and trim down Donovan's minutes. Darius has looked lost and confused. He played 44 minutes last night. There were, in a game with double overtime, think about how much time is in double overtime. There were six guys that played uh, 30 minutes or more last night. It was Levert and the starters. Again, I'm not. Tr- this is not just all about JB, but it does feel like we're at this critical point where either the Cavs organization has to help JB figure this out a little bit more. I'm talking about end of game execution, um, X's and O's, basic stuff, out of timeout plays, the basic stuff people have been talking about JB for since he was Houston's head coach for a season uh, eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, this is where the rubber meets the road. And you either need to help JB figure it out or you need to help the players figure it out. The Cavs are too good. And listen, one-game gimmies is fine. Bad stretches happen. But when the bad stretches happens, matter. And the things that hurt you in the playoffs are the things that are killing you now. Darius struggles, the offense um, in the half court, Late games, I mean, just looking abysmal, 
right? Shot selection, three-point selection, late in games, abysmal. Um, your big's getting pushed around to the nth degree. Offensive rebound, which is a massive problem for this team. They're the same three things that killed you in the playoffs. So you got the better roster. So if I was told all, all we need are a couple tougher guys, we need some three and D players, we need guys that can shoot the rock, well, your best three-point shooter can't, see, can't sniff the court in a double OT game. So what are we doing? Are, are we winning our, are, sorry, are we, and this is a, a criticism I've had of Kevin Stefanski before, and it's going to be something that anytime I see it, I'm going to call out. This last year, what made the Browns last year so cool was it felt like Kevin finally embraced a different way to win. Because Let's score more points than the other team. That's that he he realized the point was we just got to score more points than the other team. But if you look at any one of the four different ways they won with the four different quarterbacks, they they had to embrace other ways of winning. They couldn't just do it the Kevin Stefanski way. Right now, JB's doing it the JB way. And the timing, if this happened, if this was if this interrupted the eighteen of if you put it smack dab in the middle of the eighteen of twenty stretch, probably don't have a problem. But post-game or post-All-Star break, it really does matter. John, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Hey, uh, watching that game last night, in the final 13 seconds, the Cavs just had to run the clock out. They got the ball over midcourt. They gave it to Donovan. Donovan holds it, waiting for the guys Chicago to come and foul. And Darius is standing at midcourt all by himself, one more pass would have killed three or more seconds, and and Darius can shoot free throws just as good as Donovan. Uh, they're going back to this old philosophy, give the ball to LeBron or now Donovan and let him win the game for us. He's not a team player anymore. He won't give it up, let anyone else try and win the game. So, and I thank you for the call, John. I, I don't want to say that about uh, Darius. I wouldn't, wouldn't say it about Darius or Donovan. I don't think Darius is a bad kid at all, nor do I think Donovan is. I don't think it's their fault. I mean, this is this has now been almost two years with a similar theme about how they play offense in the second half of the year. And I, I absolutely do buy the philosophy, you either coach it or you allow it. And right now, it's being allowed. And there are reasons why it's happening. I completely understand it. And 25 years ago, it'd be a lot easier for Jamie Bickerstaff to swoop in because of the role coaches had 25 years ago versus now. It's still JB's job to figure it out. And for Cavs fans in, in Cleveland Sports Talk Media, there has to be something between there's zero panic and we're kumbaya and the sky is falling. Right now, we're very much in between those two things. In another two or three weeks, yeah, all of a sudden you're going to be it's, – it's, now it's a 6 out of 10 for concern. Another couple of weeks after that, it's an 8 out of 10. The – Cavs lost last night in double overtime. It in and of itself, not really going to hammer them for, but it's more the through line that we've seen in seven games. And one rebuttal, and I saw it a bunch yesterday when Danny and I were talking about it, when Danny Cunningham joined me in the 5 o'clock hour, um, was, well, look at their record. And I just think that's a dangerous mentality. I think, you know, I think look at their record, kind of falls back into the idea of the Cavs have made it and we should just automatically expect them to trip and fall into the the you know the Eastern Conference Finals. That's not where they are. And there's a lot at stake this year and the organization has played it cool and played it safe in how they manage a roster. That's worth noting. 
The Cavs can be as patient as they want to be. Well, we got to see, you know, we, we, we don't really know who J.B. Bickerstaff is till he's been in seven playoff series with us. Okay, if you don't stay ahead of decisions, if you don't stay ahead of roster management, eventually the players are going to start staying ahead of it for you. But to talk about last night's uh, win by the Chicago Bulls over the Cleveland Cavaliers in double overtime in Chicago. Uh, not only is he the play-by-play voice of the Bulls, uh, NBC Sports Chicago, he's also NFL on Fox, MLB on Fox. The man has more jobs uh, than Seacrest and manages to stay very nice and very humble. It is Adam Amin on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Adam, welcome to the show, buddy. Oh, man, good to talk to you again, pal. <laughs> Thanks for the intro. Well, I got to ask you, how much have you talked about the leap year today? Because judging by the other stations I've listened to on Sports Talk, it is a hot topic on February 29th, the fact that this only happens once every four years. Do you, you feel a lot, you got a lot of takes on leap year? I, the, the one take I think I have is basically a meme that I see go around once in a while, usually during a leap year in February, where it's like, you know, instead of 12 months, why don't we do 13 with 28 days apiece? And I'm like, sounds good. You let me know when that happens. Until then, I'm just going to pretend that this doesn't, this, this, this isn't a thing that we have to concern ourselves with other than like Tyrese Halliburton has a birthday on a leap year day. That's all. So it's interesting you say this because we did get into quite a Donnybrook either this week or last week. I don't know. Time's a flat circle about um, <laughs> what was it? Daylight saving time. Oh, man. And that was corrected because I kept saying daylight savings time and somebody could not have that. One of our listeners, furious, lost all credibility with him. So it's been a very good weather calendar related month here as we also had <laughs> snow today after being 60 degrees two days ago. It's just what a time to be alive, Adam. You and, me, you and me both, pal. It was 60 on Monday. It was 70 on Tuesday, and it was 30 yesterday, and it's about 40 today. So in the same boat. So looking to the Cavaliers, um, I'm just curious because you saw them three times in the last like month and a half. You saw them on January mm -hmm. 15th. They got a convincing win over the Bulls, 109-91. Then you saw them on Valentine's Day right before the break. It was a Cavs win, but it was a close one, closer than expected, 108-105. And then last night, the Cavs just kind of fell apart in double overtime. Do you see a dramatically different team, whether the way they're playing, all that kind of stuff, like last night versus what you saw going back to January 15th, kind of in the middle of that stretch of 18 to 20 wins? You know, I, I, I didn't feel like there was much of a difference other than, like, what the rotations are going to look like. You know, I think Dean Wade was out, you know, so it's like that's an extra body, and that extra body, once you get in closer to playoff time, actually matters whether you're going to play him or not. You know, because it, it feels like JB is still working on rotations, and, you know, Keith and I were talking about this a little bit too, and that's what it seems like at least right now. Like, every coach wants to cut down – to nine guys at most, maybe eight guys uh, in key stretches during you know playoff series. And I know this this is going to be a really important playoff series, whatever it ends up being, whether you guys are the the two, the three, the four, whatever it is, it's going to be a very important series, especially after the you know disappointing finish a year ago. So I understand that cutting rotations down, getting a a solid stagger of when you play Mitchell and Garland together, when you play them separate how much you play Allen and Mobley apart compared to how much you play them separately. I know these are all questions and, and experiments that you're running right now. I don't see a ton of difference in the style of play game to game. 
I think in game is when you see a lot of the peaks and valleys, right? And whether that's rotational base, whether that's movement base, whatever that's based on that given night, it's been, this has been an up and down team. Like even, you know, the blowout win in January, I think, I think the Cavs were up big. I think they were up like 20, 21 points in the second half. Bulls came back and took a lead at one point in that game. So you know, I know it ended up being Cleveland making the, the strong push towards the end in January, but like that's, that's the type of games I've seen Cleveland play where they can have big leads and that lead can dissipate very quickly all of a sudden. Like As good as they are defensively overall game to game, I think against the better offensive teams, they fall into some lulls, whether it's on offense with ball and player movement or whether it's on defense with pre-rotational stuff. Because at its best, I think this Cleveland defense rotates really well they, they put Allen and Mobley into good positions to be great help defenders, and they allow Mitchell to you know be aggressive, and, and Garland, for that matter, too, um, to be aggressive out on the perimeter with steals and, and let those guys kind of operate as, as rim protectors. I see a lot of lulls. Now, come playoff time, is that going to hurt more? Yeah, it is. Right, right now, no, it doesn't really matter that much. They're still, what, 25 and – seven or something like that or whatever 25 and eight the last 30 some odd games but come playoff time I think that's when that could become more of a factor and a problem Adam I'm so glad you mentioned um it kind of that little spot there at the end about uh, the timing of everything and their overall record you know when the when the Cavs kind of staggered into and stumbled into the all-star break it was well they're tired and then the the first few games after the all-star break it was well just one or two games. And now you look at it, they're they're three and four in their last seven games. And we've kind of had this ongoing debate as a station on when on the NBA calendar do does style points or what wins or losses look like matter as much as wins or losses themselves. And I'm curious whether you have, whether it's February 29th or any other day, when all of a sudden you, how you win really starts to tell you the tale on whether or not you're going to be able to play well and succeed in the playoffs. Yeah, that's a great that's a great thought. And I know there's, you know, 50 different worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole. Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Answers from 50 different people if you ask them, right? Like, feel-wise, if you're like a really good team, like you're really, you know, elite-level roster, let's say a Boston right now, right? Like, that's a team that has pretty good championship medal. Like, they've been there. That You know, a lot of that roster has been to the finals. Uh, they've played a lot of playoff games. They've got a lot of experience on that team. So I'm, like, not as concerned with that group, with, like, the Tatum and Brown run, and I'm not worried about Al Horford and, you know, guys like that. So for Boston, that has, like, a little bit more solid, deep playoff experience, I'm less concerned about what they look like in, like, late February and, like, the first couple weeks of March when everybody's kind of shaking off a little bit of the – you know, all-star break mindset, you know, maybe some of those guys are taking some time, you know, off or being a little bit lighter on their feet uh, when, when they get done with some all-star festivities, like the guys who, who had to make the trip to Indianapolis. 
I'm not worried about them. When it comes to everybody else in the East, the Philadelphias, the Milwaukee's, the Cleveland's, the Knicks, you know, teams that either don't have as much of a deep playoff pedigree or haven't played particularly well despite their pedigree. Like Milwaukee falls into that category perfectly. I feel like you really have to start keying in right about like the second week of March because that's when it gets a little more solidified. you got a month left. you got about 20 games or so to really kind of tinker and experiment. Obviously, a team like Milwaukee that's only had 13 games with Doc Rivers has a lot of work to do. You know, they're 6-7. and seven. I know they're playing a little bit better now. Uh, five, five of their last seven they've won. But I think Milwaukee is a team that needs to start figuring it out now. I think Cleveland is a team that has a little bit more leeway because they've had more continuity and they've had multiple iterations of their roster to be able to figure out how to win games. And I think it's tinkering here right now for JB. Like rotation-wise, what's my best lineup against this type of team? What's my best lineup in this situation? Like these are things you have to track as a coaching staff. So I feel like it's different for different teams. But like if I'm looking at Cleveland and Milwaukee and Boston, the top three in the East, I think it's very different timelines based on the experience, the current level of play, and what I've seen overall from October until now. Adam, given the insane scoring that teams average now in the NBA, the the association has had thoughts about tweaking the rules to to maybe, I don't know, give defenders a chance. One such proposal that has support, it's not an official proposal, but that, that uh, NBA uh, decision makers have tossed around was eliminating the defensive three-second violation. Did, are you a fan of that idea and how it might change the NBA? When I first hear it, I'm not a fan of it, but I am a fan of playing around with something like that or playing around with this. I think this is a concept that could grow on me a little bit. Initially, I, I balk at it, but I think part of that is just this is the way we've done it for a long time, and there are other problems to fix. I think like how fouls are called in the league right now are a bigger issue, which boils down to officiating. I think officiating, as we've talked about, I know you guys have probably discussed this aplenty just in the last couple of weeks alone with some of the results that have, that have uh, taken place you know, in, involving the Knicks in particular, their game against uh, Detroit earlier this week where it's the no, you know, the no call on DiVincenzo, uh, the Rockets game where they had the protest that got denied the other day, you know, when there should have been a foul on, I think it was Aaron Brooks. Um, you know, like just the way the games are officiated, I think have to be cleaned up first. That might help. I think consistency is something that's really important. It's really hard. I understand because there are so many volatile personalities in the NBA and so many different types of personalities and the only way to grow relationships between officials and players is to let the officials officiate. But I, I feel like there's a couple of other issues before we start deep, deep diving into some of the more consistent rules that we've had. But I'm open to it. I'm definitely open to it because something has to give when the point total is what, like 115, 116, like the league average right now. It's really high. But just I don't see enough physical defense. I don't I see inconsistent levels of physicality night in and night out. And I think that's where the initial problems lie rather than the functional and mechanical operation of what a defense looks like. I think the individual physicality has to be figured out first and that begins with how it's officiated and more importantly how consistently it's officiated. I just can't believe you think tackling someone is a foul now. I mean, talk about uh, this woke soft generation cancel Shock, culture and all that. Bro. 
we used to be a country. We used to be a proper country around these parts, Nick. I mean, uh, if 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 Kareem Abdul-Jabbar can't knock Ken Benson <laughs> into 1989, is it even basketball anymore? I ask. Actually, so I got into an absolute Donnybrook. Uh, yesterday with my, my partner, I got into uh, – now the morning show, I uh, had a fight about my take, I and it was about Mark Price, how he'd look in this era. I'm curious, though, which NBA player from a bygone era would you most like to see play in today's day NBA? Uh, a couple come come to mind. Um, no surprise that, you know, they're both European. I think uh, I, I would have loved to see Arvidas Sabonis, DeMontis' dad, uh, who I think a lot of a lot of guys I talked to from that era, you know, the Dominique Wilkins of the world, my partner Stacy King, uh, who played against guys like that, you know, they say that he would have fit into the modern era. Like Arvidas Sabonis could have been like a Doncic, Jokic type of player because that's the role he would have been placed into based on the skill set that he was already coming in with. Um, I, again, in Chicago, I you know I'm a little closer to this, but Tony Kukoc, you know, who was a who became a really solid player as basically like a, a fourth or fifth, sometimes sixth man uh, in terms of options for what that Bulls team was doing. Oftentimes he was the, the third best scorer on the team. Uh, you know, he came in with that, that style of play that, you know, the, like Luka Doncic makes, makes look easy right now. What Jokic does at his size is what Sabonis was doing a lot of, not exactly the same and maybe not with the same size or physicality, but, with the passing ability, the vision, uh, the clever nature of the play that made it tougher on defenses to figure out what he was doing. And he still had the, the level of physicality that was appropriate for that style and that era of basketball. So those are two guys that I've, I've talked a lot about with other players that feel like they would have fit in perfectly in the style of play that we see right now. Guys who are a little bit bigger, who could still shoot from distance, who had an, a passing ability that belied their size and a vision and IQ that that felt like somebody who had been playing in the NBA for a long period of time, even though those guys had all this great international experience, they translated it better than a lot of other European players did. Adam, great stuff as always, buddy. Appreciate you. Keep killing it. And uh, uh, maybe next time the Cavs get another win, because I like it more when the Cavs <laughs> win than the Bulls win, just, just for my own kind of feel there so it's still it's still like a seven you know like a 10 10 10 game spread nine nine ten game spread i think your guys are fine <laughs> all right we'll, we'll we'll see buddy no i appreciate you buddy great stuff no no problem at all pal anytime adam mean there on the north homestead chrysler jeep dodge ram hotline the play-by-play voice of the bulls uh, nbc sports chicago nfl on fox mlb on fox adam Amin of nbc sports in chicago in the previous segment talking about what he's seen from the cavaliers and I was so glad Keith brought him on and and booked him because, you know, Adam has seen um, three different games from the Cavs and Bulls over the last six weeks. And one of those games came right at kind of the peak of the Cavs at their best. And then the middle game came kind of as they kind of petered out at the end of the first half. We're going into um, the NBA All-Star break. And they won, but it was it was a lot closer than it should have been. And we, we were talking about style points then. And then this last one was last night. And again, really specific to last night, how they lost matters more than they lost. And I think it's really interesting. Adam, Adam brings up a great point. This team is incredibly streaky. And I think I hear, I think that's a lot of um, on the – Offensive side of the ball, because I've noticed it too. 
but when you're when you're shooting 42% on 43s, streakiness doesn't seem to bug anybody, right? Like you can be an, an up and down team, a team that can go on a 10, a 20 point run and give up a 20 point run just as simply. You can be that as long as you're closing out games and winning effectively. Nobody cares about the first three quarters of streakiness if in the fourth quarter you lock it down. Well, the Cavs are not shooting. Um, it's not just about they're not shooting as many threes now. It's when the threes aren't happening, which is late in games, and the ball is sticking, the shot selection is not as good, and it matters, and it will matter going forward. And it's something the Cavs have to go ahead and figure out. Now, I would like to point out, um, I just, some guy, just like some guy named Turtle Pimp on my Twitter feed just liked something of me, which opens up a lot of questions. If you're wondering why I bring this up, I also wonder why I'm bringing this up. I'm just kind of lost right now. I'm, I'm somebody you're going to hear a lot of what I think on the air. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that yet, but it begs the question, is this man a turtle that is a pimp or does this man pimp turtles? And I will say, I don't think pimping turtles is legal. I think that's very questionable. I, I'd rather he's a turtle that pimps or a, or a pimpy turtle. I, you get what I'm saying. I, it's different if you're a turtle in this scenario, Kayla. Maybe he's a pimp that's very shy, or he's a breeder, a turtle breeder. That's a little weird for me. I, the dog breeder thing, I get it. Uh, you, you have cattle, I get it. But but you just breed turtles? Look up how much they cost. I guarantee you, you would understand afterwards. I just Okay, so uh, listen, I, I grew up in Medina County. So I understand you got to the, the the mayor is in that like shoot thing and you got to bring the 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 stud and then something happens. But you got to get the stud out real quick because you don't want damage. I understand how this works. Somehow that's weirder for me with a turtle guy than with with horses or just cattle in general. So shout out to turtle pimp. However, three minutes of radio. We're never getting back. 216-474-0092. Thoughts on turtle pimp. Um, we have not talked a lot of Browns yet. We're going to have more with Albert Breer coming up at 5:20. but I gotta be honest with you. We let something, I let something slide earlier this week and it was, we had all that sound coming in from Andrew Barry and, um, Kevin Stefanski the last couple of days. And so this, this kind of just got lost in the sauce, but I wanted to make sure we talked about this today before I went on my, uh, long weekend because, the reality is I, I want to give the, the Browns credit, right? Like yesterday, we talked about the uh, the player survey, the NFLPA survey. And I'll be honest with you, um, I think a lot of people slept on it. I think there are a lot of people willing to, sl- uh, to, to sweep that under the rug because the Browns won. And I totally understand it. And I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. But I think it's significant. You know, people... A rebuttal, if you looked at the Browns scorecard, where pretty much across the board, they were in either the bottom half of the NFL in things like weight room, dietitian, um, food in the, the, the place. Um, what are the other ones? Oh, head coach, ownership, all this stuff. They were bottom half of the league in almost every single thing. They finished 23 out of 32. And some of that, they, they kind of got a little lucky because of the way the thing is weighted. But it was funny to hear people's reaction to it, which is, well, but they won. And I I really do understand that. But, like, they also pointed out that, like, well, Kansas City finished in the bottom so-and-so. Well, Pittsburgh, you know, the Roonies got an F and so-and-so. And I think we're confusing 
the benefit of the doubt you get if you are a consistent winning organization and how we should treat you and think about you if you aspire to be a consistently winning organization. I think it's important to give the Browns, and this is not the thing. You know, a lot of times we talk about the Browns guys, and I do the thing of I'm going to give somebody a compliment so I can hit them hard on the back end. I feel good about exactly what I said in that first place so I can just bop them over the head, and, you know, it's it's a little fun. I do enjoy that. This is not one of those cases. I think I really appreciate that the Browns listen to their fans. I do. I think the quality of leadership, has changed immensely in the organization. I think if we talk about this team um, six years ago, we're talking about the worst organization in the NFL. That's not hyperbole. Doesn't matter how nice your facilities were or weren't. Doesn't matter how cool your dietician is. He's a hippie named Greg who maybe likes to pop a gummy or two now that it's legal. I'm, I don't even know if that's the dietician's name. It doesn't ma- Any of that other stuff doesn't matter um, when you are uh, 0-16, 1-15. So... When you're winning consistently, if you've won, I don't know, three Super Bowls in uh, five years, like Kansas City, they can come out and players can just respond to the survey with with a fart noise, as far as I'm concerned, because you're winning consistently. So do I think those teams should do better? Yes. Do I think it's laughable that the NFL makes as much money as they do and NFL owners um, consistently get chintzy with everything, 100%. And that's something that we don't really see from the team support side of things in terms of wins or losses with Jimmy Haslam. So I think Jimmy deserves more credit. Am I? Do I fear a little bit that there's something lurking there that, that old Jimmy can come back at any moment? Yes. Do I think it's interesting how almost every team in the NFL is turning more into an organization, I say organization, and more of a corporation, and the Browns seem to be being transformed into um, a team. Uh, sorry, a, a, a family-run team. Yes. I don't know if that's good or bad, by the way. Right? Like, there's the Roonies, who outside of the NFLPA survey are uh, given a lot of love for their consistency and their ability to win consistently. And then there's a family-run organization like the Bengals, who are as chintzy as chintzy can be if you read some of the reports of the NFLPA survey. But I think there were too many people that looked the other way on the, the NFLPA survey. And I heard it today. I've heard it on this station. Well, I don't know how much that matters. Well, guys, until they win consistently, it matters. And I think they're on the way. I do. I think that so much of the positivity, and I, man, I really like Andrew Barry. And I think I, I'm still, I still have questions about Kevin Stefanski. I think he's a, I think he's a hell of a guy. And so it is easier to be patient with an organization where you think the two people running the thing are legitimately good human beings. I think Jimmy has to have had taken a step back and not be the same kind of guy who was meddling the way he was uh, six years ago. I still think he meddles. I still think he's involved. I don't really like the setup of Paul D. Podesta. It annoys me because I think it's the perfect, I think it's the perfect coup. Oh, hey, uh, whew, this one, you know, we just didn't get it done. Um, I Like Paul's job, There, what determines whether he's doing a good job or not? It's not on wins and losses. It's not on how well you're drafting because they've struggled at that at points. It's not about the consistency of the organization. So, like, that bugs me. That's something they look at and go, well, that's not how other teams are set up, and I'm concerned about that. But it should be noted, the Browns have made leaps and bounds, like just jumps from where they were six years ago. 
But to say it doesn't matter when they still haven't had back-to-back winning seasons since 1989, I think is, is either homerism, pandering, or just frankly looking the other way. Does it matter as much as that, that uh, NFLPA survey when you were a zero-win team? No. Nope, not at all. Does it still matter something? Yes. Because when players feel like you don't treat their families well, that, that's likely to have some sort of impact. Whether it's in free agency, guys wanting to sign here, whatever it is. Um, when, it, when it's things like uh, the size of the weight room and the quality of it, yeah, that's, that is a problem, guys. Because this is their career, and you've got to make sure these guys are are in the right position. And so this is less shame on the Browns. This, how dare you? This is less um, me on a pedestal and a soapbox. Uh, that is not what I want this to be. But it is more of a message on the focus of this organization has to be getting better in every conceivable way until there are consistent results on the field that back it up. I think it's very funny. I think I think it's very interesting that Jimmy Haslam as an owner gets a B and Kevin Stefanski, who I think saved the season this year, gets a B minus. But again, I'm not in that locker room. And if the if the players really enjoy Jimmy Haslam, that actually does make me happy to hear. But this thing matters until it doesn't. And to just go, well, but they said the thing about the locker room. Okay. That's one part of a what was it, 10 part report? And why it matters is because while there have been significant improvements in the Browns, just the way they run things, and the on-the-field product has looked incredibly better the last four years, the Browns still have a ways to go. And there's one specific arena that the more I thought about the messaging I heard out of the Combine, the more that I thought about um, how this season is shaping up, how the preseason is shaping up. It It is something that I think we've lost sight of. And it's something that I think absolutely deserves to be pointed out because it involves you, the fans, and how you're treated and whether you're respected or not. We're talking about the, um, the NFLPA survey and just how much it actually matters to you. Because I, I think it does matter. I think it matters until you've consistently won. And then things like um, weight room and then things like nutrition. Like, listen, unless you're the Cincinnati Bengals, who apparently are starving their players, who on off days don't have a cafeteria that's open, who do not give their players three square meals a day, despite pretty much keeping their players on, on days they work in the building for 12 hours at a time, you know, unless you're that in whatever one of these areas are, there's just room for improvement. So I appreciate that the Browns want to improve the the weight room. And I think I thought it was interesting that the Browns had that one on the ready when the NFL PA survey came out and they're like, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, we're gonna fix the weight rooms. Okay, what about that treatment of families? Hey, uh, hey, let's ask that question about why Kevin Stefanski was given a B minus. And again, I don't think it's the end all be all. But for an organization that has not consistently won, that and let's be honest, that at points has been treated like a paycheck, it matters. Bob on Twitter saying uh, he thinks it's horrible. I wouldn't use horrible, but I would say not great, Bob. And uh, he said the weight room can be fixed, how their families are treated. Horrible. Everyone should get together and find a way to fix that. Cleveland is a small market and has to do better. There is a big part of me 
that is just so painfully Midwestern that it when I hear that 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 players feel a certain way about how their families are treated, I just the dude cannot abide. It's just it's a little too much for me. I can handle. Um, I clearly don't care much about the weight room. I clearly don't care much about dietitians or nutrition. But there's something about how you treat your players and their family that really does. I don't like hearing that is one of their worst grade. I want to get to Josh in just a moment here because he has a question about the Browns report card. But this is a great moment to say how much, you know, one of the things that kind of snuck past the goalie the last couple of days with all the sound is that the Browns are going back to, to the Greenbrier. And I'm just not, I'm just not that into it. I just, I just quite frankly, um, I, I understand why Kevin Stefanski feels like it worked out for them. They went to the Greenbrier, they won 11 games, and Kevin felt like there was something tangible to that experience. Um, man, I don't think it mattered at all. I don't think it matters to blocking and tackling. I don't think it matters to the quality of individuals that you import into your organization. And it's funny because... You know, Kevin's talked about, well, we just limit distractions. And yet, a lot of people's families were there. And and um, a lot of people's entourages were there. Uh, there were imported distractions that include those two categories and maybe of a different persuasion. The female persuasion is where I'm going there. So my point is, the Browns sold this whole Greenbrier thing and why it worked is, well, we got away from the noise. Well, no, you just took the noise with you and you spent a couple of days elsewhere. And I'm fine with that. But I think there is, for, a, for an organization that listens to their fans as well as they do, I, this, is a, this is a warning. This is actually me approaching the Browns with respect, saying, you've done so many cool things. And, and four years later, the football's better. I, I can, can perceive and, and, and deal with a lot of things that I don't care about. But to me, Greenbrier, and going back there, is very similar to what I see as the Browns maybe losing focus on the strength of this community and it backing up this team. And again, this is not sky is falling. This is, I don't like this trend, and I think there's a little bit of, and I'm sorry to do this, you're not from here, no matter whether you've been here for a decade or not, and this really shouldn't be how we do things. And so specific to Greenbrier, which going there limits your number of practices, and then let's say uh, you have these Minnesota Vikings joint practices, which I love because I think joint practices have become a really valuable thing to do in the postseason. I actually think that has more value than just, hey, we went to West Virginia and did the same damn thing we do in Berea. But what I don't love is when I see the limitations that are being put on Browns fans to their access to the team and the Browns like every other franchise in the NFL and in sport uh, almost every franchise used the 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 pandemic to limit the access of the media and it was the most predictable thing to happen and it still tends to go on and again I don't want to specifically it's not a Browns problem it is teams are paranoid and teams want to control everything and teams want to go ahead and they don't like the rotten stinking media uh, being all over their headquarters. I totally get it. That is different to me. Uh, at, you know, controlling access and, you know, making that place like Fort Knox in Berea totally makes sense. 
this is a very special town. And I know the Browns know that. I do. But if they roll out eight practices again where fans go to, I think that is a a miscarriage of justice for Browns fans because not every Browns fan can afford season tickets. Um, I know a lot of fans who had season tickets on a limited basis previously that have now been priced out of the new NFL and, and, and again, the Browns have done a fine job at keeping those. It's going to change when the new stadium goes up, whenever that goes up. But the Browns have tried to, to think of uh, the majority of their fan base. It's still happening. If you could go to four games uh, 15 years ago, you maybe are able to go to about a game now. I, I include my own family in that, by the way. I can afford maybe a Browns game, maybe a Cavs game, uh, a couple Guardians games because they're a little bit more affordable for a family of five. But practice isn't just practice. And I understand there are scenarios, like in Minnesota, where they leave um, Minneapolis and they go up and they're, you know, what is it, three hours away? Um, Yeah, that's kind of the tradition. Uh, Looking at the Panthers, the Panthers have been in Spartanburg up until this year for training camp since they came into existence. So in those instances, there are scenarios where fan bases do not have this kind of access or they have to travel for this kind of access for their fans. In this case, though, in Spartanburg, when the Panthers went there, you can actually show up. You can actually go watch practice. And it was a lot more than eight practices a game. And even then, I think it's really important to remember that there are people who can go to and take their kids to the Pupathon or all the cool things that the Browns do at training camp when they actually have training camp practices open. And it sure feels like the implication is Browns fans are the distraction, right? Because let's think about this. If you go to Green Bay to get away from the distraction and the noise, and I have no problem with families going, by the way. That's I'm a family man. I, I wouldn't want players to be away from their families. I would be miserable away from my family if I was in training camp. But it was supposed to be solidarity, and we, we get away from the distractions. Well, families, entourages, um, imported distractions were clearly allowed to go. So what was the distraction? Was it practices? Was it fans being at practice? Because that is the weakest and lamest idea I've ever met. The Browns are why you have a team and why, why honestly, this whole thing exists. It's why 92.3 The Fan exists because of your passion for this town and for that team. It is why I am able to live out my dream every day and it's not – I don't want to make it seem like the Browns are, are taking it for granted, but it is a concern that I have. And you never know who the next great Browns fan might be that goes to those practices. And so I want to see how it shakes out. I really do. And I, I if they have more than eight practices this year, I'll be very, very happy, and I will – I will say, you know what? It looks like they understood. They've kind of modified it from last year, but two years in a row, they've talked about the power of Greenbrier without understanding that the loss is not on your team. The loss is on the fans. And the loss is the relationship and the continued viability of the relationship from the fans and the team and the fans and the players. That matters. It really does. You cannot take that for granted. And now you've got the Greenbrier. Now you've got joint practices. Now, all of a sudden, for the first two weeks of the uh, the season, you're going to be on the road. Again, individually, I get it. 
I understand some of the business opportunities they have. I understand they don't control the Brazil thing. But if we're going to just keep doing this, hey, fans aren't going to be able to come to the Greenbrier. Hey, you've got, aren't you happy with your eight practices? Versus, I don't know, most of the practices, I think that's a real miss. And because we're talking about the NFLPA, I just think it's important to remember Cleveland is different. This connection is different. Don't get in the way of Browns fans and their sorry, and the players and this team. Josh, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? How's the Prince of Parlay doing? Oh, I'm being princial? Is that a thing? <laughs> It should be if it's not. And probably that that lame ass answer probably tells you exactly how I'm going, buddy. Princely. <laughs> princely. That's what I I'm very princely today, Josh. <laughs> All right. So I've been listening over the past few days and just kind of understanding everyone's take on it, what's good, what's bad. Here's what me personally, I'm a businessman, so my thought would be how does this year's report differ from the last few years, or even from back when, you know, Kevin Stefanski first started? Like where where has he lifted? Where has he fallen? So year over I year. I don't know those answers. So real quick, because Keith actually brought this up. I've got five of the categories in year over year from 23 to 24, because we didn't have time to go back. I think it's a very fair question. Year over year, it they're very similar marks. But, you know, there are – so for treatment of families, weight room, and training room, they all scored at least half a level higher last year than this year. For nutrition – uh, locker room and I think strength strength staff they scored lower this year. Did that? No, no. I just realized what I said there. So last year those first three things were higher. This year those last three things were higher. And I think I might have got, made everybody go cross-eyed. Is <laughs> that is that? So it's it's a little split, but the marks are very similar. The only thing I couldn't see is whether they were higher than twenty third last year because we wanted to turn that around quickly because we know you had a question. Uh, you pretty much answered what I was uh, what I was thinking of. All right. Well, I wish you a princely rest of your day, Josh. Thank you, sir. You as well. Thanks, buddy. I just want to know what you guys think when it comes to the Cavaliers. And we got into the idea of how much of this really matters, the last seven games. I think it matters. And I think we've gotten to a point as fans, and this is not a Cleveland thing, this is NBA fans have too many dumb tropes that might be true sometimes but aren't true all the time. You know, it's only February. Well, but look at the look at the Cavs' record, right? Well, yeah, one game doesn't matter in the NBA, which is actually not true because, you know, there are things like tiebreakers and there are things like teams losing position, uh, you know, going from the two seed to the three seed, which could absolutely massively impact your ability to make a deep playoff run. But because uh, NBA media has just stocked up on all these team-friendly, player-friendly uh, quite frankly, generalizations that matter sometimes but not all the time, it's completely destroyed. Like, I don't know, the eye test or actually paying attention to your basketball team. And so it was interesting to me that people look at last night and they just want to view it from the prism of a game. And, and listen, I'm going to meet you halfway. If you view it from the prism of, well, one game, I actually am okay with with losing last night's game from the fact that it was the second half of back-to-back. Chicago's okay. They've got good NBA players. They're just not a great team. And honestly, they just outlasted the Cavaliers. 
but it's not just, and it's insincere, and it is, it is, I would say, homeristic to say it's just been the last game. It's the last seven games. And I think you got to get to the question that I think matters most. Who are the real Cleveland Cavaliers? And I, I, I think I know, but I think it's interesting. You know, I, I, I want to double back real quick here, but 216-474-0092. Are the real Cavs the team that's played the last seven games or the team that won 18 of 20 games, uh, and, and that kind of wrapped up shortly before the end of the All-Star break. Because here's why it does matter, and it, it came up when we were talking about, or talking with Adam Amin, the Bulls announcer, in the, the, the 2 o'clock hour. Because there are teams, like when the Cavs had Kyrie, LeBron, and Kevin Love. Yeah, like they could have used another you know elite scorer. They could have used, there, there were other players, like if they had had a true stretch four, um, instead of Kevin, who was kind of forced into that role, man, that, that team could have been even more dangerous. Um, you want to talk about a true rim protector, which like you kind of forced Timofey Mozgov into. There are ways that Cavs team could have been better, but because they had a premier wing player, a premier guard who could score and who could shoot really well in Kyrie Irving, and then they had a big that could rebound and shoot really well, a lot of it was, I mean, wake me up when uh, it gets to June. That's not what you have. Boston has that. Boston has Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So when they go and lose, uh, was it four of seven games, you go, yeah, it's Boston. We'll, we'll see him. We'll see him mid-May at the very least, right? When Giannis, or even with that that big uh, stumble, uh, that, that Adrian Griffin gets fired, um, Doc Rivers comes in and tries to get himself fired, that whole stumble right there. They still have Giannis. So you have natural rebuttals to periods where the team isn't playing the kind of ball they should. And things like, well, they're not playing good defense, um, that's that's an effort, focus, and togetherness issue. Yeah, they don't have Drew Holiday anymore. Yeah, they've lost um, or they've they've kind of changed over some of their feisty players that kind of help them play defense and, and stay sharp on defense. But in the end, you've got Dame Lillard, you've got Giannis, and you've got guys who should be able to at least give you – somewhere in the top 12 in defense in the NBA. So it's not as if there's a recurring theme that falls back to the build of the team that you can't get over. With the Cavs, somewhere along the way, folks in town, and when I say folks in town, I am talking media, not the fans. Folks in town decided, eh, well, they're not going to do anything. And this absolutely plays into the Cavs' hand, by the way. They're not going to do anything. So... We can't analyze them until the playoffs, which is caca. It matters. The Cavs have not done a damn thing in the playoffs. The Cavs have a head coach who, no matter the fact he was at the helm and they won 18 of 20, he also has limitations like timeout usage, end-of-game management, um, his rotations, his overall rotations across the game, uh, le leveraging his players too much. These are real things. They were real things when they were winning, and they're real things that now in the last seven games, they've, they're have they three and four in their last seven. And the problem is the things that have popped up in the last seven games are the exact same thing that bit you on the booty last year. And quite frankly, they bit you on the booty before uh, Darius and Evan got hurt. It was... The stagnant offense, it was no ball movement, it was forced shots, it was possessions at the end of the game come down to, hey, look, Darius is dribbling. Oh, look, a shot that nobody should take. 
and there's no movement around him. The ball doesn't move. So it's a stagnant offense. And this is a team that already, because of I maybe it's their culture. I don't know. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. It's already a team that is prone to up and down moments. So I really want to say this team, the real Cavaliers, are the team that's won 18 of 20. You know why? Because that team was elite, explosive, and the most fun team to watch in the NBA. But this is the team that's actually as constructed. Like, a part of what you were able to do with Donovan running the offense and where the ball didn't stick and where the ball moved and the extra pass happened on damn near every position, part of that was you didn't have to juggle responsibilities with Darius. And I think Evan, the three-point shooting thing, has been really fun to watch. I hope he keeps it up. Now, I, I haven't even paid attention to it because I'm not going to give into that constant emotional dialogue of did he shoot a three-point tonight or did he shoot three? I don't – I kid's got enough pressure on him. I probably will think back on that about two or three weeks, by the way. But as of right now, I, I want to let it play out. I don't think this guy is falling. But as we assess who are the real Cleveland Cavaliers, this team that's struggling – that's the through line. Roster composition, how you use your your players. And this year, Jimmy Bickerstaff went from having the, I don't want to say excuse, but the retort last year, I don't have enough talent. I've only got seven guys that I can play. This year, it's I have too many guys to play. You know what the through line there is? Your head coach. And I do think there's a part, there's an Ouroboro effect where right now, his limitations as a coach, very strong culture development, uh, X's and O's, all that other nonsense, uh, you know, things that matter in the playoffs. Um, that is feeding into the the little roster. I don't. It's not issues, but the differences in the Cavs roster without a premier wing player that like Boston has two of, Milwaukee has one of, Miami has more than one of, uh, Miami has one of. That's what you're seeing. I, w- I desperately want to believe the Cavs are the 18 of 20 team. I still think that they can get it back, even if we're not going to go 900 basketball, which my uh, rudimentary Bowling Green Ivy League math tells me is 18 of 20. Even if they're not going to do that, do I think they could still uh, clinch the, the second spot in the East? Do I think that a lot of teams struggle out of the all-star break and they kind of putz around? Yes, they don't have the wiggle room that those teams have. Even when you, you factor like Philadelphia. I mean, Joel Embiid might not be, might be a big, he's a point center, which means he impacts the game in three different ways. He does impact the wing significantly on the offensive side of the ball. You don't have that guy. You don't have a guy with size and skill that is going to change that for you right now. That does matter. 216-474-0092. Who are the real Cavs? These last seven games or the 18 games and 18 wins in, in 20 stretch. Desperately want it to be the team that won all those games. And I think the question is, now what do you get back? How do you get back to being that team? And I think limiting the amount of times that you have, and I, I'm, I'm a broken record here. Like, you've got a – this is a question when Darius and Donovan are both playing well, by the way. 
it will be an issue in certain games in the playoffs, if not certain series, if not it might knock you out of the playoffs because you don't have the wing protection to to protect those undersized guards. But right now you've got Donovan Mitchell who looks either tired or flummoxed by trying to figure out how to share the ball with Darius. You've got Darius who looks out of place. And here's the thing. Everybody wants to throw it on Darius. I can't blame it. I cannot blame a kid for coming off an injury. He might not be ready to play winning basketball. That might be a real thing. And that might be a conversation we have to revisit when we head back into the summer. But as of right now, this whole we're just going to blame Darius thing without talking about JB's role in it, we're going to blame Darius without talking about uh, Donovan Mitchell. We're not going to talk about the, the, uh, the role the bigs have in this. Player usage, end-of-game situations, a lack of a coherent offensive structure. I, I'm I'm all for you need to figure out what the hell is going on with Darius. And if you can get him like a seven-foot, one of the Jokic brothers, not Nikola because he's under contract, but if you can get one of the other um, you know, big Jokic brothers to just walk out on a court and just pimp slap the next person that slaps him in the face, that'd be great, by the way, if you could just protect Darius Garland. But it ain't just about Darius. And the difference is I can excuse away Darius's weakness at the rim. I can excuse away maybe the reticence to, I don't know, get smacked again in the face. I can excuse away his usage as it's not helping him. So Darius, in some ways, is holding the Cavaliers back. There's a few things holding the Cavaliers back. And the Cavs are at a point where the blame game, and I'm so, I'm talking about from uh, us, the media, the blame game doesn't make it any truer. Yeah, Darius has got to be better. He's got to be more efficient. He's got to play well when he's on the court with uh, with Donovan. And the Cavs have to get that kid confidence and get him healthy. It can't just be fall guy radio or fall guy fandom just because we're afraid of having expectations or losing Donovan Mitchell. I have immense respect for Ken and Anthony, so much respect that I consistently disrespect them on this air. That's the sign. If I, if I disrespect you on air, that's better than if I don't talk about you at all. But they asked for this. And at the end of yesterday's show, Danny, uh, he, he broke my ankles. He iversoned me. He crossed me over. Because we were having a conversation about um, Donovan Mitchell and Kyrie Irving. And I think I won. I don't think Danny ever answered me how Donovan's a better player. I think Danny, in the eyes of the public, might have won because he picked the more popular player. Now, respectfully, Danny's a man about town, lovely human being, good dude, good buddy. He was wrong. and But in the middle of the conversation, he sprung it on me. When we, I'd somehow it came up with Mark Price, and I was talking about my love of Mark Price and his, uh, you know, where where I think he would be in this era of football. And Danny, yeah, you know, Danny basically dookied all over Mark Price. And when I say that, what I mean is he didn't agree with me that Mark Price would be a MVP candidate in this era of basketball, which was fine because I was here to defend myself. And I will be honest with you, it was the end of the show. I did not defend myself as well as I should because I was so caught off guard. Which, by the way, in our poll on our show page yesterday, just before the show ended, we put that poll out there. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the listeners and fans that voted on that do not agree with you either. That is because okay. 71% said no. Just because consensus is consensus doesn't mean those people are on the right side of history. 
because I have noticed. Here's I will I I will always take uh, if I feel like it is the the true side of the argument. I'm not afraid to take the losing side of an argument simply to feel like I won that's an been, argument. That's been made apparent. I mean, I heard times. I heard Ken take a shot at me today about uh, you know you're not gonna you're gonna win arguments, Keith, when you called in like you do on the the morning show, and I think we've discovered. That they think there's a scoreboard out there. Well, I what they that's just do is when they disagree with you, just hang up on you. Well, I was going to say to to win or lose an argument, you do have to have an opinion first. But that's neither here nor there. I was, you know, hey, uh, hey, this could happen. Now, this might be an issue. Answering a question is not the same thing, and having a provocative topic is not the same thing as having an opinion. But I digress. There's news from the combine spring training, and the NBA. But how does it affect the Cleveland sports scene? Simply follow each team in the Odyssey app to get all the audio from our local shows pushed straight to your smartphone. Download the free Odyssey app today or visit 923thefan.com so you never miss a beat. Now, I say all of this to say I have no problem that they disagreed with me. I thought Lima made some, some good points in rebuttal to what makes Steph so special. I think Lima... Um, I'll be honest with you. I think Ken uh, dookied on the conversation. I think Ken wanted to agree with me. He was afraid at, that people, the, the populace might disagree with him. And so they played a little bit of our sound and they, they, they never let the full context. Now, in fairness, it took me a while to get the fair context. So it's not all on them, but they asked for this. You are out of your God blessed mind. If you think that Mark Price wouldn't absolutely eat in this era of basketball. And listen, maybe it's a little snug to say definitively he would win an NBA MVP in this era. But when I heard the guys talk about it this morning, I heard Lima talk about Dale Ellis. Um, Mark Price has a better, or uh, the exact same, or just about the exact same three-point shooting numbers as Dale Ellis. Uh, he mentioned, um, oh gosh, who are the, Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller, I believe, has a 2% less three-point shooting percentage for his career than Mark Price does. And the difference is Mark's last uh, three years kind of dinged his career three-point percentage, whereas Reggie's actually kind of just kept it where it was at about 38%. They mentioned Craig Hodges, who, as it, to, to my knowledge, never shot more than uh, – or never shot uh, five three-pointers per game or attempted three five three-pointers per game. But the reason why this matters is – just because it happened last doesn't mean it's greatest. And this idea that Steph Curry would be the same player, to me, it's not. Would Steph Curry not be an NBA player 30 years ago? That's asinine. He's a shooter, and he's a, he is a prolific shooter. And that prolific shooting would have him in a role in the NBA. It, it gave his dad, who was actually a bigger player, a, a significant role in the NBA. But the reality is, 30 years ago, if you were an undersized combo guard and you weren't an elite-level facilitator at point guard, you had to be an elite scorer, not just an elite shooter. And Steph is a fantastic and ridiculous three-point shooter. But if you don't think that Mark Price was every bit the shooter that Steph is simply because of stats, then I would simply ask you to go back and watch the tape. Because for his era... Mark Price was the gold standard at three-pointing. Yeah, well, Craig Hodges was in a three-point competition. Good for you. What a, what a counter-argument. Well, Dale Ellis was 6'7". Dale Ellis would would eat in this argument as well. The Reggie Miller thing. By the way, guys, um, Steph played with this generation's 
Reggie Miller because that's what Clay Thompson was. And if Mark Price had ever had Reggie Miller next to him, God help the NBA. I don't know you beat Michael, but in terms of the longevity of of uh, Mark Price's career, I think it looks a little different. And that also brings up yet another rebuttal that I heard today, and which was that uh, that Steph played, even though during the regular season, Steph does not get sneezed on or touched and gets every and one call you could possibly get. That, well, in the playoffs, you know, uh, Steph gets a lot more attention. I will say the average NBA game in February of 1989 has more physicality than any playoff game now. Yeah, is it physical? Yeah, the NBA playoffs are physical now compared to what they were or what they are in February. It's still a league where defense and the rules uh, regarding defensive abilities is absolutely, completely against defenders. But let's get to the math of this. And I don't, I will tell you, very rarely will you ever hear me go to statistical based radio because it can get real dicey, real damn quick. So I'm a little leery about becoming Stat Boy Nick Wilson because I don't want to bore myself and I don't want to confuse myself because there are an ass load of numbers I looked up on this. But 216 474 0092. Now that I don't have Danny breaking my ankles on the Mark Price disrespect, now that I've heard my good name tracked through the mud, my my point completely marginalized so they look good, so they can go ahead and continue to be the king of the Cleveland media cabal, I'm striking back with some stats. So with that, Right now, in the Cavs era, I went to the Mark Price, his best season, meaning like the absolute zenith of his career, where he averaged five three-point attempts per game. Well, that sounds like a lot, right? Especially in the NBA at the time, the league was averaging about 6.6 three-pointers per game. So that is a lot. That specific year, 1989, 1990, the Cavs averaged 10 three-pointers per game, and they actually led the NBA. Man, this is going to get to Steiner math really, really quickly here. However, the career high of three-point attempts for Steph Curry, who is shooting for his career 2% better than Mark Price. Mark Price shot about 40, just over 40% from three per game in his career. Steph is averaging right about 42. So in terms of he's so much better in an era where they're shooting, let me go back to this number, 42. Two, three-pointers per game. Steph is only averaging his three-point percentage is 2% better than Mark Price's. So all this nonsense of, oh, he's the best three-point shooter ever. He's the most prolific. But there are plenty of ridiculous three-point shooters across the NBA, including Mark Price, that if they attempted, and, and Steph's career high per, um, per season is 10. So 10 three-point attempts per game. So it's double what Mark Price averaged at his absolute highest. You shoot 40% on that, that's an extra six points a game. So in that 20, uh, that 20, in that 1989-1990 season, here's the standard math. If you just if he's just averaging as many three-point attempts per game as Steph Curry is now, he's he's scoring 25 points per game. 
that's before we get to the increase in three point or the the regular uh, field goals in general for Steph, because Steph is a combo guard. He is not a facilitator first. Okay, so Steph also attempts more by a wide margin more uh, field goal attempts than Mark Price did. So you can add another point per game or two there. The free throws, which Steph got to a, I mean, somebody farts in his general direction and Steph Curry gets another uh, free throw, there's another point or two per game. So if we just talk about the adjustment for inflation in a absolutely ridiculous and honestly a point stupid league now in the NBA, if all we do is adjust for numbers, Mark Price is averaging in his best season, if we up his attempts, 26, 27, maybe 28 points per game. Steph Curry won the MVP. His first MVP, he averaged 24 points a game. And his second MVP, he averaged 30. So the average of that, more Steiner math, was about 27 points per game. And it's funny, like, I think it's totally fair to say, man, you know, Steph, in that era of physicality, um, and Mark Price's career was absolutely, I don't want to say destroyed, but shortened by the physicality of the NBA. A lot of 55-season games, a lot of 60-season games. If you had been able to take all that contact off his body, you can't tell me Mark Price wouldn't have played more seasons at 70 games a year, and he wouldn't have, his peak wouldn't have been um, longer than eight years. So Steph is, and listen, I want to make it real clear, because this is not Steph Curry hate. Steph Curry is amazing to watch. He is so much fun to watch. He is, in part, a product of the time he plays in, as every NBA player is. But you have to adjust that when we're comparing the best shooter of the late 80s and early 90s, the very early 90s, to the best shooter now. And what some have said is the best shooter ever. Their averages are very similar in terms of three-point shooting. Their free throws, very similar both elite uh, free throw shooters. But everybody adjusts for, well, Steph's game would adjust in 1989. And yet they don't do the same damn thing for Mark Price. Physicality, it's not a thing comparatively in 2023, 2024, the way it was in 1989, 1990. Completely different league. It was a fist fight every other game in 1989, 1990. And you start to look at just the average attempts the Cavs led the NBA in 1989-1990 with 10.4 three-point attempts per game. Golden State is third in the NBA with 39.8. But, oh, I mean, Steph Curry's that much better than the best shooter of that era. Oh, Reggie Miller could have done. Yeah, Reggie Miller would be great in this era. He wasn't the same shooter as Mark Price. Oh, Craig Hodges, or sorry, Dale Ellis is a 0.01% better three-point shooter. Look at his attempts versus Mark Price's attempts. So I get it. Steph Curry is great. There's no debating that Steph is great. But this idea that you can take one of the best shooters in NBA history and erase it because very few people actually have a frame of reference for that player, and it, it's bullcrap. Steph is great. Mark was great. Both guys impacted by the era that they're in. But statistically, there is not much gap between the two players when you adjust it for the era they played in. And if we start to do the opposite, right? How many points can we take away? Steph averaging double the three-pointers. All of a sudden, Steph is averaging about 18 points a game from his career average. 
Boy, that's real close to Mark Price, isn't it? Steiner math. You asked for it. 216-474-0092. I have no idea if that converted anybody out there to the idea that Mark Price would be an MVP candidate in this year's NBA. However, I feel like at least I've made a better case and I don't feel like I was completely uh, torn apart by playing 10 seconds of sound at a time. You asked for this. I don't think I was really that mean. Carl, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got? Hey, how's it going? Doing very well. What you got? Uh, I mean, first of all, I agree. Put some respect on Mark's name. Um, it is what it is, but he was, I mean, he was lights out. Um, but I was kind of going back to, um, you know, what are the Cavs? I, you know, are they the pre, uh, pre-All-Star game or post-All-Star game Cavs? I think they're somewhere in the middle. When it's all said and done, I think they're, again, going to be a four or five seed. Um, in the league that we're in, I just think it is incredibly, incredibly hard to win and to go far without a, a dominant superstar and at least two extremely dominant role players next to them. And we don't have either. Mitchell's great. He's not a superstar. Um, and, you know, I, I love Mobley as well. But like you said earlier, he's not, a, he's not an Embiid type that can – he's not a three-tool player. And in the league we're in, you just unfortunately need that. I think Miami was kind of the, uh, the out, outlier last year. Um, yes, you know, Butler's a star, but I don't think he's that guy. And even when you have the Lucas of the world and guys like that, I mean, they still don't go far unless they have that supporting cast. It just takes so much. Carl, excellent stuff. Real quick, would Mark Price be an NBA MVP candidate in this era, and would Steph Curry be an NBA MVP uh, candidate in 1989? Um, I believe yes on the first. No, no uh, maybe on the second, but probably not. Um, Again, different eras, different toughness, and, you know, you sneeze at him and he gets a free throw. So we'll see how his body would have held up. It's also funny to me, and I'll let you go, that they say LeBron couldn't, couldn't handle it in that era, but Steph could. Like, what are we talking about? I love it. Carl, you're the best, buddy. Appreciate you. 216-474-0092. All these W's just rolling in here. It's nice to get them W's here. Uh, do you guys think? I finally made my real case here. All right? I'm finally, the, the real thing is on the record here. I encourage Lima or Ken to call in. I think Ken agreed with me. He just didn't want that smoke from Lima. I encourage them to call in and settle this 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 absolute Donnybrook of a fight we're not having. Caitlin Clark is officially declared for the WNBA draft. Uh, she is 17 points away from passing Pistol Pete Maravich uh, for the all-time scoring record in Division I college basketball. And when I mentioned to Jake Murren, who's doing the 2020s, about Caitlin Clark entering the WNBA draft, he said, yeah, she's about to pass some old guy. I just heard that, and I yeah. wondered if I heard it right. Yeah. And and then, so that was enough where I was like, all right, we're going to have to talk about that. That is, uh, you know, okay, not great, Bob. And then he was like, yeah, they were in the they had the side-by-side picture, and he was just some old guy in some ratty LSU uniform. And I was like, he is thought to be one of the five greatest scorers ever in basketball, let alone NBA history, just basketball history. Maybe a YouTube video or two. I mean, you know, no, listen, got a lot of love for Jake. Jake helps the show, the station. We appreciate him. Referring to Pistol Pete Maravich as some old guy from LSU. A little over the line. And the other thing that I saw in the break was that some uh, model was arrested after being caught making explicit content at uh, Bucky's gas station. Two, 
Whoever. Well, that's why Nick wants to go there again now. Well, it's. Uh, I will say it's the only thing they didn't have when I went there the first time. So, so now all of a sudden, wait, wait, wait. So I get the the Texas burritos, all right, which are, I mean, fresh and as good as any burrito you're gonna get. And we're gonna get the buck nuts, and we're gonna get adult content. Yeah, I mean, all you right? get uh, you pay for the food, get the free show. Here's the problem. Gas stations, and I don't like this. Is not a gas station. Don't besmirch Bucky's. Whoever called this on this uh, was this uh, the the World Star feed. Whoever called this a gas station? Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, LeBron James just uh, just a just a basketball player. Okay, now, that's the same thing to me. He's more. He's an icon. Um, that being said, we were just having a conversation about Mark Price and Steph Curry and Bucky's. Easy transition there. It's just real smooth. That's what I'm known for, the smooth transitions. Um, and, and whether or not the, either guy would be a different player in a different era. Because it's less about, I don't want to disrespect Steph, but Mark Price really is just a placeholder for an era of NBA players that it's so easy to say, well, Steph is doing this. He's at, you know he's, he's got uh, 10 three-pointers a game and shooting 42% of them, ergo... He's better. No, because the game is completely different. So if we start to look at the little averages, uh, Mark Price, average three-point attempts per game, uh, the NBA average, all that kind of stuff, we start to factor it in. You can quickly see Mark Price in this era. Before we get to how would he evolve his game, which is just a natural thing. Guys, I'm going to say if if Steph Curry was coming out of the draft in 1989, I'm going to say his development would look, look a little different than it did in the NBA now back when their weight rooms were uh, probably uh, less than even the Browns' current weight room situation. So you got to do the same thing for Mark Price. And just because he didn't have that opportunity to doesn't mean he wouldn't do it, and vice versa. So I just think it's really funny how snobby we've become about this god-awful era of basketball that we have to watch, and it is awful. Um, I think the league average for points per game is like 118 points per game. There's zero defense being played. Even when they try to play defense, they're not good at it. The whole game is rigged. The calls are rigged to open up offense. I mean, there was that just abysmal tackle by Dante DiVincenzo on Asar Thompson on at the end of the Detroit game that wasn't called. And then they called a ticky-tack foul on um, Jalen Duran at the end of that game to basically ice the game for New York. But let's just put this in in the league average in 1989 was 2.2 three points three pointers made per game. The league average was 107 points per game. So the points scored 6.2% of of points scored that year came from three balls. This year there are 12.8 three point attempts, or sorry, three point three pointers made per game. At right now, 115.3 points per game. So I got the points per game this year a little off. And that is good for 33%, given that the uh, average is 38.4% in the NBA this year. And it was 33.7% in 1989-1990. And there I've gone, Steiner mathing you again. Jeremy, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Well, I got a good transition for you because I'm actually calling from Texas, where uh, you know Bucky's is a, is a state state treasure down here, and we see more of that kind of stuff than I, than probably gets reported. So, All right, let, let us know, you know your OnlyFans handle at the end of this call, Jeremy. 
Uh, I will not do that for your your benefit. But um, I'm you know from Cleveland, born and raised in Cleveland. I'll say this about Mark Price. I think that when you're transitioning the eras of basketball, I think my opinion would be I think Price would fare better in this era than Curry would fare better um, in his era. Although I do appreciate what you said about they would have come up different. So I think that that does make sense. I just remember back to being a you know a teen and that era of basketball, Mark Price, and remember just how scrappy he was uh, when he did decide to take it to the rim. And uh, how much of a more uh, seemed like anyway, like a natural, natural shooter, in my opinion. And so I just, I think if, if, if Price was in this era, I think he would fare better in this era versus uh, Curry faring in, in the in the Mark Price era or during that era of, of basketball, in my opinion. Jeremy, I appreciate the call, buddy. Enjoy Bucky's. I'm so damn jealous. I do love me some Bucky's, but um, I think I think the way I've also thought about this for a really long time, and you can absolutely do this for somebody like Michael Jordan. You can do this for other guys of that ilk. Like a guy like Scottie Pippen, I think would be a clear and a way obvious one on a championship team in this era. Because he's not LeBron, but if you look at it, um, he was a point forward. He could score. He, he was an elite defender. You put him in an era where he just has to worry more about scoring than anything, and he fits that that LeBron size. I I think we ha- I think it's a travesty we never got to see Scotty in this era, and that Scotty doesn't give credit for what a damn good player that he is. Hopefully, Scotty knows he's a very good player. But I just think it's Mark played in an era where the rules were all about big men. They were all about point guards facilitating, and that's that's the style of play. And Steph plays in an era where it's very wing friendly and more importantly, shooter friendly. And he played in the perfect situation for an undersized combo guard with Clay right next to him and then Draymond Green taking some of the distributor load off his chest, being able to be a point forward. So Steph played in the absolute perfect era for his style of play and the absolute perfect situation with talent around him. I'm not complaining about Mark Price, but he didn't have the luxuries and the style of play advantage that Steph does because he was playing in a big league where the second you would you would get downhill and try to go at the 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 bucket, you'd get the crap kicked out of you. To talk about the combine, to talk about um, the Browns, the organizational grades, all of it, we welcome on on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline, as we do every Thursday at 520. Elite. He is elite. Some guys, four-cone drill, three-cone drill, not elite. But Albert Breer is elite. What's up, buddy? Well, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it, even if you really didn't mean it. Oh, I always mean it. That's the thing. I, I'm I'm far too nice, but uh, in in cases like this, it is totally warranted. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So, Albert, what is the uh, what is the big buzz or big talking point surrounding the Browns in Indy? Surrounding the Browns in Indy, um, well, I mean, I would say a lot of it was like uh, a lot of the stuff that I heard, at least, was sort of centered on Deshaun, which is interesting. You know, um, it's. I think going to be the storyline going into the season and, um, you know, kind of where they are with, you know, like his big contract and whether or not they can get the most out of him. And um, not that you're going to roll the clock back to 2020, um, but like, can they get that kind of play out of him again? You know, and, um, you know, I, I think, I think we saw where the Browns are um, last year and, and where Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski have the roster, you know, it's a roster that's ready to compete. And so, um, does that going to add up to a Browns team that's contending for a championship? And it is Sean Watson, who's, you know, playing at the highest level. Um, so that's obviously a big part of it. And then 
Yeah, I think the staff changes are the other thing. You know, like and with Alex Van Pelt and Bill Callahan gone, and you know, uh, bringing in Andy Dickerson to be the line coach, bringing in Ken Dorsey to be the coordinator. Um, you know, what's that going to look like going forward? I'd say that's the other thing. Albert, you mentioned Deshaun Watson. Uh, Kevin Stefanski admitted the other day. Uh, next week, uh, Kevin uh, Stefanski, Ken Dorsey, they're going to go out to um, L.A. to, to kind of yeah. uh, sit down with uh, Deshaun Watson and chop it up. But we know you can't really talk about a damn thing. So I'm curious, what can they talk about? Well, I mean, they can they can talk about kind of his plan for the offseason and they can kind of go through some things from the season. And they can talk about you know, how Deshaun wants to handle, um, you know, April and May and June, and they can start to build the relationship. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are restrictions on what they can do from a rules standpoint, but there's still a lot you can get done, you know, just because you can't get out on a practice field and start installing plays doesn't mean um, that you can't do some work that's going to you know, put you in a position to hit the ground running when you get to OTAs in May. You think everybody talks about their, their most recent binge success? I, I would say Ted Lasso for the second time. It still holds up. Their most recent what success? Uh, binge watching uh, adventures. Oh, binge success. So you you went and watched Ted Lasso a second time. Yeah, yeah. It makes me feel good, Albert. It makes me feel real good. I mean, does it make you feel good about the world? I'm assuming that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Needed that yeah, one. A little yeah. pick me up, bud. Yeah, yeah. I, I know Ted Lasso is always good for that. Um, but yeah, I think like the relationship building part thing is part of it, right? Like so. How do you build that relationship up? Um, yeah, I certainly think that's part of it. Albert, the NFL uh, Players Association organizational grades, as voted by uh, players in the association, were released this week. Another wonderful job of J.C. Treader, uh, making sure that comes out right during Combine Week. The Browns did not grade well, 23 out of 32. There were weight room concerns. There was a low grade for uh, Kevin Stefanski. I'm, I'm just, from like a meaning standpoint, do those grades, do they actually impact these organizations beyond just, hey, these are, these are pretty embarrassing to see these out in public? I think they do. Um, and I think they do because there's nothing a billionaire hates more than being embarrassed. And I don't think the coaches like being embarrassed. And I don't think the people organizationally like it. And, um, I think the real proof of that is what you saw happen with the Cardinals, where I mean, the Cardinals got – I mean, pretty much humiliated last year by this, right? Like this whole thing um, created a real problem for them from a perception standpoint, not that they were seen as any sort of model organization beforehand, but I mean, they took some, they took it on the chin pretty good, you know? And so um, having to go through that, I think caused them to have to evaluate a lot of things and they didn't fix everything all at once, but they replaced the floors in the white room and they, stop charging guys for, for, for the, the third meal of the day, you know? And so um, I, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases, these teams and these billionaires almost have to be held at gunpoint to make some of these changes. And um, the fact that they're being held publicly accountable and it can be a problem for them, um, you know, like in the public sphere, I think does have a way of creating some meaningful change. Albert, Kevin Stefanski got a B-minus grade. Uh, that was, I believe, bottom 10. Um, yeah. And obviously it's interesting because uh, he just won his second coach of the year award by, by, by writers. Is that reflective of how he's seen more from the player angle, meaning around the NFL in general, as opposed to by the NFL uh, awards voters who, who've given this no. illustrious award twice now? No, I mean, I think a lot of it's, 
a lot of and you have to remember what this is about, and this is for both the coaches and the owners. It's about the workplace conditions, right? So there were a couple of things specifically that they did with the coaches. One of them was how efficiently does he use my time? Um, how much does he listen to the concerns of players? How much are the concerns of players taken into account to affect change? Like those are the sorts of things that they're looking at. And, um, you know, B-minus isn't great, but it's not a train wreck either. And I think Kevin said himself, like, he's going to take these things into account and um, try to, you know, communicate better with the players to try to figure out um, what they can do better. But, yeah, I mean, I think more than anything else, it's not like we hate the coach if you uh, downgrade a guy in certain areas. It's, you know, the players being honest and how they feel like their time was managed, how their work days are managed. Um, how you know their voices are heard, those sorts of things. Albert Breer um, at the, uh, or rather at the combine, talking about the combine on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. A lot of talk in Cleveland about Nick Chubb, and there's reason. Uh, he's coming off the injury. There are contractual things going on that you know looks like the Browns could want to restructure that, give him a contract extension. There are a few different ways they could handle this. What do you think the most likely route the Browns is that they'll take with Nick Chubb? The I think he's got what a year left, right? Yes. Yep. Um, my guess is they handle it the same way the Titans handled um, the same way the Titans handled Derrick Henry. The Titans hand, went went into that final season with Derrick Henry, um, you know, trying to treat him with the respect that he deserved, and understanding that you know there was you know a very real possibility that he would have a great year and they'd have to franchise him and then they'd have to move forward that way. So um, look like, you know, I think when you get to a point in the running back's career where the carries are adding up and the years are adding up and the, you know, you've been through the physical, um, you know, you've been through all the, 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 the physical toll that, that goes into playing that position more and more, you have to start to look at those things. And um, you know, that's sort of where the Browns are. He's coming off of a major injury. Um, and I know how much everybody there thinks of him, but you know, you're not paying a guy for past performance. You're paying for what you think. If you give him an extension, he's going to give you in 25 and 26. And because of the uncertainty, um, you know, it's created again by his age, his workload and, and the injury. Um, I think it's, it's hard to make any sort of major commitment to him um, past just this year. Albert, one of the big storylines out of Indy is that uh, the commander's new owner, Josh Harris, is uh, is is, is going to be in these prospect interviews for quarterbacks. Is that a big deal, little deal, no deal, considering the commanders just got rid of one meddling owner? I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I, I, you know, owners have been involved in these sorts of things in the past. It's not always at the combine, but... You know, I can remember the Bills when they were, you know, looking for quarterbacks in 17 and 18, and Terry Pagula was, you know, on the trips. You know, if I, in fact, I remember Terry Pagula standing on the field at Texas Tech um, to look at Patrick Mahomes. You know, so, you know, I think, like, those guys, the owners can be a good sounding board on the, in the, like, okay, like, here's what I think of him as a person. Here's what I think of him as, like, a potential face of the franchise, all those sorts of things. As long as they're not like, as long as they don't think they're going to like go out there and, you know, be judging how loose the guy's wrist is, you know what I mean? Like, or, you know, what sort of pocket presence he has, you know, I, like, I think it's, I think it's generally fine. And in a lot of cases, cause those guys do have a lot of business acumen. It can be, it can be a good resource for the football people to have. It just shouldn't be more than that.
Albert, uh, Caleb Williams has been talked about as the number one quarterback prospect in this class for almost two full years. There were some concerns this year. And now that you've been in uh, Indy, you've heard the scuttlebutt for the last couple days. Is Caleb Williams still the unanimous number one pick and uh, the the unanimous QB one in this draft? I would be um, relatively blown away if Caleb Williams isn't the first pick in the draft. Um, that's nothing against Drake May. That's nothing against um, Jaden Daniels or J.J. McCarthy or anybody else. Um, I believe the Bears are going to take it first overall. Um, and I, I do think most of the league and most of the evaluators who have been, um, been on this and you know, you know, spend the fall evaluating guys and were evaluating some of these guys last spring um, would tell you that Caleb Williams is a once-every-few-years type of talent. Whereas, you know, like May and Daniels are more like they could be top five picks or top ten picks in every year, every year, you know. So I do think that there's a separation between Williams and the pack. And, um, you know, I think what's going to happen over the next couple of months, guys, is we're going to have that big vacuum of, you know, of, of, of NFL discussion. And we're going to have to fill that vacuum. And um, that vacuum is going to be filled by a lot of draft talk and, um, the same way people acted as if Robert Griffin III was creeping up on Andrew Luck in 2012 and Zach Wilson was creeping up on Trevor Lawrence in 2021, we'll probably get the is Daniels or May in the class of, of, uh, of Williams. But I, I think the truth is Williams is sort of separate from the pack and that's good the same way Lawrence and Luck were in their draft years. I cannot wait to, to unveil my quarterback big board, which will change every single week coming up in the middle of March there, Albert. Um, so we saw Marvin Harrison Jr. show up to the combine, but de- declined to test and declined to do the kind of pre-combine testing that gets you right for like doing those tests. I'm, I'm, and this opens up the question I think we have every year. Are players skipping the workout portion of the combine? It, is that... Is that ever going to have long-term ramifications for the NFL Combine and whether the league sees it as useful? I, I actually think the league's desire to have the Combine a certain way is damaging what the Combine is actually for. In other words, I think the more the league turns this into a circus, the more football people are going to push away from it and the more reason the players have to treat it like a business. And – I mean, look, like, you know, in other sports, I think in the NBA, the guys, like, refuse to do medicals at the combine, right? So, like, Marvin Harrison's made the decision, I'm not going to run a 40, I'm not going to do the three-cone drill, I'm not going to do any of the physical testing, I'm not going to do on-field drills, um, and I'm probably not going to do any of them at my pro day either. Why? Well, he's going to be the number one receiver taken. And he has more to lose than he has to gain by putting himself out there. And so, wouldn't you guys say he's better off training for his rookie year than training for Olympic testing and then having to retrain himself for his rookie year. I think if I was the team drafting him, I'd be ecstatic that he was doing that because you're going to have a guy who's going to be able to hit the ground running in in May at OTAs, you know, and, and I'd say the same goes for Caleb. Like Caleb has every right not to do any of this testing. The only thing he can do really is hurt himself, you know? And um, so I, I, I think that, you know, more and more guys, as the league treats this as a business thing, are going to treat their decisions as business decisions and how they handle these things. And, um, you know, I, I think with that, with the NFL's approach toward, toward it, now you see more 
coaches and general managers and scouts handling the combine differently too, which is certainly interesting because as they've tried to make it bigger, the people who make it big in the first place, and that's the teams and the players, are actually pushing away from it and might actually make the whole product a little less valuable to the people on Park Avenue. Albert, I know you're right in the eye of the storm here. you got several more days of heavy day and night work out in the combine. I'm exhausted for you, so uh, you know, make sure to get some Pedialyte up in that game and uh, enjoy the rest of the combine, buddy. Really great stuff. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And sorry I had to have you repeat questions a couple of times. I actually left a notebook with valuable uh, information in my hotel lobby. And as I was doing this phone call, I was like actively looking for it. So if I sounded a little spaced out, I, uh, that, that might've been why, but I did find the notebook. So we're all good now. So you did a fantastic job. And what you could not <laughs> possibly know, Albert is today I have lost my wallet, which was on me. I have lost my key fob for work, which was on me. I lost my keys to my truck, which was on me. I lost things that were on me five times today and it took getting to work an extra 30 minutes. And so, really, you're actually doing quite well if you compare yourself to the day that I am that I mentally am having. I don't know, man. Like, I, I like that's a lot, but uh, I'm the king of losing things. So, I, I don't know if you want to fight me in that department. I, I, I can beat just about anybody. You can ask my wife about that. We'll have to have a combine to decide this. Be good, bud. <laughs> All right, man. Later. Albert Breer on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. I empathize like hell that he forgot his notebook with a lot of stuff in it um it has been that kind of day yeah not just that here's the thing it, i would be very insincere to say it's that kind of day uh yesterday had to stop and get cough medicine um because the plague has gone through the wilson household again and i walked into cvs there in bainbridge and uh came out and i was like man why can't i find my keys ah it's because they're in the car now i'm very lucky because the keys were close enough to the door that uh, Vanessa's car has that ability to, like, the keys are close to the car, the car can detect it, and you can unlock it. So that happened. But that was the start of 24 hours of whoopsie-daisy from me. And I thought it was interesting to hear Albert. I think I think there are going to be a lot of victory laps this offseason about Deshaun Watson. And it has nothing to do with anything to do with his suspension. The NFL does not want Deshaun Watson, and other NFL teams do not want Deshaun Watson succeeding because you can use this contract, the fully guaranteed contract, the first $230-plus million guaranteed contract, in its entirety, you can use that as a warning call on why players should not get that again. And honestly, it's pretty dumb, mostly because... Um, like guys like Pat Mahomes actually do like, because he didn't face that same suspension, guys like Pat Mahomes do deserve fully guaranteed contracts. Um, Lamar's different because of the health injuries, uh, the same, or so the health issues, same thing for Joe Burrow, but this whole off season, every time the national media, or you hear a report about the Browns and Deshaun Watson, I would say every time you're going to hear a lot of people dunking on the Browns saying, I knew this was never going to work out. And lo and behold, it's coming true. And that, by the way, that's not just national media. That's going to be in town too. And honestly, I think NFL narratives, even though that sometimes they they come true, a lot of them don't. So 
I think this is the year where Deshaun becomes a distraction again. And when I mean Deshaun, I'm not talking about Deshaun, actually. I mean, good luck hearing anyone say anything different about the Browns other than, I, I knew this wasn't going to work out, and look at this is why you don't give guys fully guaranteed money. Deshaun's contract is a threat to NFL owners. And NFL owners, the, the number one thing that you can uh, you can bet that they're going to go ahead and rally around, circle the wagons around, is anything that impacts their bottom line. And I thought Albert did a hell of a job talking about the impact of those organizational reports put out by put out by the NFL Players Association because that's the kind of strong arming that has to happen for NFL owners to support their players the way is that is necessary. And I do understand that when you have 32 teams, someone's always got to be last. But the bar is incredibly low for NFL owners. And even guys that have been in the, the league 50 years, Mike Brown and the Bidwell family who's owned the Cardinals since I want to say inception – or very close to inception, there are a lot of people, even newer owners, who honestly don't do the right thing because they can save a buck. And so I think it's great what J.C. Treader's doing. And I think you you and I are going to get sick of hearing about Deshaun's contract and all the things that we've already talked about. I think your best chance, and I think the Browns' best chance, is to ignore it. Doesn't matter. The fact that it hasn't worked out, and by the way, nor is anyone going to give proper context to Deshaun's struggles. It's not happening in town. Like, there's no nuance to Deshaun's conversation. It doesn't matter that two years ago he came in, played uh, his first games in 700, 700 plus days. Well, it wasn't good enough. That's as good as that gets. This year, it doesn't matter that there were two shoulder injuries. Nope, wasn't good enough. No matter that he was better. And listen, I root for Deshaun Watson to succeed because, man, I got to be honest with you, it's going to be brutal if he doesn't. And like everybody else listening right now, I have my concerns. And I think after this year, like I, now my concern morphs from, well, he's not going to be any good to can he play a full game of uh, a full NFL season again? The answer is I don't know. If you ever really want to know how dirty the NFL is and how – Truly, the NFL owners care. Watch how they treat Deshaun by extension of that contract. And it, it it's going to get, there are going to be some reports. And when I say reports, I mean NFL owners mocking the Browns and all that other kind of stuff, taking personal shots of the Browns. The reality is this, is, this was always a possibility when you traded for Deshaun. But to me, I don't care. NFL owners are going to say what NFL owners are going to do because it's good for NFL owners, and it's good for business if they're cheap. I don't think even with what Deshaun was accused of, suspended for, all that, I still don't think I can side with NFL owners and the anonymous rumor mill that conveniently finds a way to, in, in some cases properly, weaponize things like this contract. So the idea that Deshaun is one of the talking points of the combine doesn't surprise me. It's going to get louder. Albert actually talked about the, because I asked about the quarterback, is is Caleb Williams the unanimous QB1? Is he the unanimous number one pick? And he's like, listen, there's going to be a lot of noise because we have that news vacuum in March and leading up to the NFL draft, he's going to be the number one guy. 
that news vacuum, you can bet when they talk about the Browns, they're not going to talk about the number one team in the in the NFL or the number one defense in the NFL. You can you can trade for Joey Bosa. That I'm very that's that's my off season move. They trade for Joey Bosa. It's going to be tough for me to 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 not lose objectivity and all of a sudden uh, get a get a Miles Garrett and Joey Bosa half and half jersey and go absolutely crazy on the preseason hype. It's still going to be about Deshaun. And from the Browns' standpoint, not really any use in worrying about it doesn't make it better. The best you can do is plan for the worst-case scenario. Two years ago, the Browns didn't because they brought in a quarterback that was not a prototypical one-for-one for Deshaun Watson. Different skill sets, different kind of offenses make them better. Didn't help that, uh, that Kevin Stefanski didn't build an offense that actually fit Deshaun's skill set. They used the excuse of, of well, 700 days off, uh, well, lost all this, and nobody was going to – it was crocodile tears for Deshaun because of what he was accused of and what he was suspended for. You can't control health. You can't control how you build this team and whether you do everything in your power to build a winning team with or without Deshaun Watson. There have been bad contracts in the NFL before. There will be other bad contracts. Deshaun's contract isn't the boogeyman. It was a cost to doing business. Hopefully, business ends up being good. Hopefully, business is a booming in the long run. Chris Fedor sending out a tweet. Now, d- real quick, Keith, have you seen the Let Him Know tweet? I have not. Oh, that's right. Well, that's for tomorrow. So we, yeah. this would be more something to keep uh, in mind. I'm bringing up Donovan Mitchell's Let Him Know because he literally lets us know. Donovan, when he's getting ready to play, when he's getting ready for the game, he'll send out hashtag Let Him Know. Going to want to watch that tomorrow as uh, Fedor sending out Donovan Mitchell, left knee soreness is questionable for tomorrow night's game here in Detroit against the Pistons. I mean, there's no way he's playing, right? Shouldn't. I mean, you got the Knicks and the Celtics coming up Sunday, Tuesday. I would imagine it would be a really dumb thing to play Donovan in this game. You shouldn't need Donovan to beat the trash-ass Pistons. I'd also say maybe he wouldn't be questionable for this game or maybe that knee wouldn't be sore, assuming that this is actually a real thing. He didn't play him 44 minutes last night in a – um, hotly contested double overtime game. Yeah, maybe maybe if J.B. Bickerstaff, I don't know, used his bench properly and didn't have Darius Garland, who's struggling, play 44 minutes, and Donovan Mitchell, who looks tired, and I don't want to say he's struggling because he's still doing Donovan Mitchell things, but maybe if J.B. Bickerstaff just uh, rested his guys, took care of Donovan Mitchell. I mean, listen, I'm not trying to turn the Cavs into the Lakers and who the hell knows when either LeBron or AD is going to play. I'm not trying to turn them into the the Clippers who you've got like a 33% chance of seeing all their best players start in the same game uh, with Paul George, James Harden, and Kawhi Leonard. I'm not trying to turn you into that. But J.B. Bickerstaff does know he can go ahead and rest Donovan Mitchell, right? Because, listen, I... I'm very appreciative to JB. It doesn't sound like it because I hammer him because the things I value in a coach are what do you do at the end of games? What's your game management look like? Uh, How are you out of timeouts? And overall, I think X's and O's, like look at going from Mike Budenholzer, who is one of the best X's and O guys in the NBA, to Adrian Griffin, who's a young coach who maybe doesn't have the experience as a head coach late in games. It was a difference between a machine outside of last year's playoff run with Milwaukee, a machine in Milwaukee 
to a team that has staggered and stammered and, and, and might be finding themselves now, but wasted half of a season because they fired their head coach stupidly last year. So I think X's and O do matter more than anything. And they matter down the stretch, and they matter in uh, the playoffs. Like Ty Lue, guys, from day to day, Ty Lue in the middle of January, I don't know how much value he has. I know Ty Lue was instrumental with his rotations and with his creativity in his rotations in inbounds plays. And and defensive, And by the way, it's not just offensive, it's defensively as well. Um, that's where Ty Lue became a guy that won an NBA title and is still thought of as one of the better coaches in the NBA. Jimmy Bickerstaff has not done those things. And I'm appreciative of a guy, even though I just said what I said, um, I'm appreciative of a guy who's really good at building a culture. I would appreciate him more if um, things like Donovan Mitchell's minutes weren't an issue. And here's the thing. You look at the year over year, um, Donovan Mitchell's minutes have lessened, but we're talking about the minutes he's playing right now. And every time we talk about J.B. Bickerstaff as a coach of the Cavaliers, he gets this pass. They got the pass when they were winning 18 of 20 games because, well, they were winning 18 of 20 games. They had their run issues. He did not pull the trigger on rotations a lot. But, yeah, you were winning, so we're going to go ahead and look the other way. J.B. must be a great coach. He gets a lot of credit for that. Um, I have thoughts on that. I've shared those thoughts before. But specific to right now, Donovan's averaging 35.7 points per game. Or, sorry, minutes per game. What are we doing? I mean, seriously, what the hell are you doing? Last year, he averaged 35.8 minutes per game. That was his previous career high by about two minutes per game. So you're doing it again, and you don't need to. Guys, I don't, I don't want to do Cavs coaching search radio. I would like Mike Budenholzer here next year. I don't know. You're going to get Mike Budenholzer. The idea of getting another unproven head coach, and I got to listen to this organization tell me, well, we'll we're going to give him. I can't, I can't really judge this new coach until he's been here for seven years. I, it's interesting. I don't have that problem. It's interesting. The rest of the NBA has no problem uh, judging Adrian Griffin uh, 42 games into his uh, coaching career. Now, he was an absolute dumpster fire of a head coach. He was too busy disrespecting Terry Stotts to, I don't know, coach his friggin' team. But the point is, and, and, and dividing his locker room to coach his team, but I digress. JB isn't a dumpster fire. I think I'm I'm dangerously close to saying you're never going to win a championship with JB, and I'm dangerously close to saying I don't know you're going to win a playoff series with this guy. Houston, and I know this is a tough sell. Houston, when he was the head coach, his one other playoff experience got his uh, doors blown off. How did the play-in game two years ago go for J.B. Bickerstaff and the Cavs? How did the playoffs go last year? So I can tolerate a little bit of that of like, well, you know, he's a young guy in NBA parlance. Let's get a let's get him his third playoff action before we really can tell that he can't call an inbounds play to save his life. Hey, let's uh, let's go ahead and let's waste another year in the playoffs. Um, and maybe waste the entirety of Donovan Mitchell's time here to figure if he can go ahead and play Sam Merrill on any given night. And if it sounds like I'm a little heated, I am. What are you doing with Donovan Mitchell? I'm not saying it's easy, but this is this is what they pay you for. And if you're going to be a culture guy, the least you could be is a rotation guy. So he's got some little Rolodex. He's got some, I don't know, Apple iWatch thing that tells him the rotations? Well, uh, here's here's uh, my official analysis. Your rotations suck. 
And right now, playing 44 minutes for Donovan Mitchell last night was stupid. It was needless. It was stupid. And you're wearing Donovan Mitchell out. Oh, and while Dar- uh, Darius Garland struggles to high Helen back, and you do literally nothing rotationally to separate the two of them outside of a five-minute stretcher here or there. Beyond that, all right, Darius Garland continues to struggle. Do you just want – I mean, this is the this is akin to hearing uh, JB talk about it, sitting on a pier being like, hey, that person over there is drowning. Damn shame. You've got a life preserver right next to you. Why the life preserver? And it is just infuriating. And I, you know what? Miss me with this godforsaken, well, but what about the record? Nonsense. Guys, look at what they've done the last seven games. The 20 games to this point is the anomaly from the New York series last year on. When he had a full, uh, a healthy team. He couldn't manage rotations, and Donovan and Darius weren't playing together, and they were a 500 team. Darius and Evan go out, and all of a sudden, Darius or Donovan was put around four shooters and a rim protector, and lo and behold, all of a sudden, the Cavs are good again. And then after the minutes restrictions end with Darius and Evan coming off the injury, what happens? All of a sudden, everything that was wrong with the Cavs in October is wrong again. Well, but guys, look at that record. Yes, they got insanely hot. And the Cavs are turning that into a missed opportunity. The the Bucks have given you, if you had won the last seven games, if you had won the way you had been winning, if you had been separating Darius and Donovan and keeping and trying to build some something with Darius to get him some confidence back, if you had done that, maybe you'd be like five and two. Maybe you'd be multiple games up the Milwaukee Bucks. Maybe, but you know what? And listen, he finally did the thing he needed to do like three months ago. He finally changed his tune. Last night after the game, yeah, it's uh, it's not enough. It's not enough. I would say the same thing about J.B. Bickerstaff. I think tomorrow, very likely, maybe it's even a scheduled rest day, right? But why the hell are you playing your undersized combo guard who's the key to an Eastern Conference championship run this year, why are you playing him the career high in minutes? Tied for career high in minutes. Last year was, well, I just uh, I only had seven guys. If only you had a regular season to try other guys out and give other guys a chance to earn your trust. But because JB knows better about these players, uh, the, some teams are going to throw, you know, these. The, some teams are going to exploit Sam Merrill. Yeah, welcome to the NBA. That does happen. And then you counterpunch. That's how that's supposed to happen. But the lack of creativity and the lack of common sense when it comes to minutes for this team is galling. And it is coming to a head because now they've, they've, they're below 500 in the last seven games. But I don't want to hear for anybody riding the fence, and I heard it this morning, for anybody else that wants, ah, well, you know, how much does it really matter? <laughs> cool. I don't want to hear you bitch in May. When they get bounced out in the first round, how did this happen? What? If only we could have gotten some sort of, I don't know, Donovan Mitchell playing too damn much in most of these games when he carried the load for 20 friggin' games. If only this could be avoided. Nick Wilson back on Afternoon Drive. There's news from the Combine, spring training, and all the NBA. But how does it affect the Cleveland sports fan? 
Simply follow each team in the Odyssey app to get all the audio from our local shows pushed to your smartphone. Download the free Odyssey app today or visit 923thefan.com so you never miss a beat. And, you know, there were a couple reactions at Nick Wilson says um, that, that does drive me a little crazy about the, the Cavs. Um, I think it was Kev on Twitter saying, talking about the Donovan Mitchell minutes, um, and Donovan playing 44 minutes in the Chicago game. And he said, maybe because the game went into double overtime, question mark, hashtag just a thought. Um, I think that's an excuse. Guys, they they got other players. You you don't have to, like when late in games, one, um, you could have conserved Donovan early in the game and you could have allowed yourself the risk of falling behind early in that game, but conserved five to 10 minutes, five to six to eight minutes on Donovan Mitchell. Donovan doesn't have to play the entire first half or a good deal of the first half. He doesn't. Not as Darius. That's actually the best time to try out your lineups. Hey, Darius, you're going to run the uh, the second unit here, or Darius, we're going to give uh, Donovan a five-minute blow here. Let's see what you got. Oh, and by the way, Sam Merrill, you're in. So this idea of, well, but it went to o- double overtime. Okay, what about every other moment where he's leaned on Donovan too much? Where's the course correction from that 18 of 20 win stretch where Donovan had to play a bulk of the minutes? Because if we're talking about wear and tear in February, you guys think that's going to get better in uh, you guys think that's going to get better in the playoffs? And why it matters is now's the time where you figure out what you have in your bench. Now's the time. And you got, listen, this was one of the silver linings of the injuries earlier in the season. The silver lining is because Darius and Evan were out, you got to go to Sam Merrill. You got to go to Craig Porter Jr. You got to go to Tristan Thompson Moore. And lo and behold, those guys produced. So it makes no sense that you're still running the same guys out there, your starters, you're leaning on. Guys, I don't want Tom Thibodeau as a head coach. I don't. He's not the juice is not worth the squeeze. Yeah, New York's playing great basketball right now. Uh, he is prematurely limiting the careers of everybody on the court that he's overplaying, as he did in Chicago when he prematurely curbed the the high point of Derrick Rose's career. But the difference is Tom Thibodeau actually can coach a friggin' NBA game. When it comes to rotations, when it uh, Rotations, maybe not after what I just said. But no, he actually is good at using his rotations earlier in the matchup, and he's actually good at X's and O's. He's not Eric Spolstra. There's one of those guys. He's not um, Ty Lue or Steve Kerr. He's still a good coach. So New York and Chicago and every other place uh, Tibbs has coached, it's always been about is the juice worth the squeeze? At least you got some of that X's and O's stuff. And Mike on Twitter said, got it, you hate JB. Grow up. Like, seriously. Guys, this is not about JB the person. And this this remedial like thought process in, well, you're criticizing this guy, so you hate him. We got it. No, I don't think he's a good enough coach. I think he wasted the opportunity last year doing the same crap I'm seeing this year. And I don't have tolerance. I bit my tongue too much this offseason as the team played into a JB-friendly narrative when he was 100% uh, I don't want to say 100%. He was a huge reason why they got embarrassed in the playoffs last year. 
Remember that honeymoon period? Remember where every day was fun because of how good the Cavs and Donovan were playing? And we we had uh, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Do you guys remember that? Because that ended when Tom Thibodeau coached circles around J.B. Bickerstaff in that first round of the playoffs. And yes, we can talk about, well, the players need to be tougher. Yep. Okay. Where does that toughness come from? Hey, the, the players need to be a little tighter. They need to know the moment. Okay. Who is in control? The guy, the cultural guy, right? Well, the culture just got your ass handed to you in the playoffs. So if you're cool with the risk of a coach in part, and I don't want to put it all on JB, if you're cool with going out in the first round of the playoffs again, and that's what the last seven games gets you, you you get into the playoffs with this exact same team playing this way. If they don't figure it out, guys, they're going to lose, and there will be gigantic, maybe cataclysmic change coming to the Cavaliers. And... Hey, trust us isn't going to work with Donovan Mitchell. Hey, Darius. Yeah, your career took a little downturn this year. Trust us. We're going to get it worked out. Good luck with that. So it's not about, oh, I hate J.B. Bickerstaff. No, man, I root for good people. Everything I've ever heard is J.B. Bickerstaff is a good person. Everything I've seen with my own eyes is he's not a very good coach. Not in this scenario where you're trying to sustain winning and winning at a clip where and here's the thing you're going to go back to but the but the record but the record the record is buoyed by 18 and 20 or eight, sorry 18 out of 20 the record as of right now is the red herring it's not about hate jb come on no it is does it, this is the number one question this year does jb deserve this opportunity and can he win in the playoffs cuz if darius garland isn't ready by the playoffs i'm going to look back at that coach if you go back to a seven or eight man rotation again in the playoffs, when you got Sam Merrill, Craig Porter Jr., you got a bunch of guys who could absolutely give you five to ten meaningful moments or minutes in the playoffs. Guys, that's what swing series. Richard Jefferson didn't play 30 minutes a night just dominating ball in the playoffs. Dante Jones gave you a foul. All right. Tristan Thompson didn't play like an NBA starter for 42 minutes at a high level, but he gave you minutes. Mon Shumpert gave you minutes. That's what the playoffs is. So let's not do the, oh, we get it, you hate JB. No, ambivalent, don't know the person. The coach is a real problem right now, just as Darius Garland is. 216-474-0092. I want to hear when Donovan Mitchell is, is, is uh, wheezing, on the far side of the court, in game four, game three of the first round series, because he is spent. Again, I don't want to hear anybody being like, well, what about JB? If you're the, oh, you're criticizing him, you must hate him, don't want to hear, I cannot. You better be better be a little silent on that. Uh, John saying, Donovan running 40-plus uh, minutes against Chicago, but somehow being off the floor during the final sequence of the Magic's, Magic game, Make it make sense. Um, he's not a, not a good head coach. Mike saying, what coach would you like? Uh, anybody that's actually good at rotations and manages make the rules around here and manages the minutes of his superstars. I'd like Mike Budenholzer. If Ty Lue gets uh, gets bounced early in L.A., I'd love give me Ty Lue back. Guys act like the the bar. There are people that act like the um, the bar for coaches is so astronomically high 
when you're just like, hey, these rotations are not working. These minutes are ridiculous. Who can we find? I don't know. Throw a basketball in roughly any direction in the NBA. We are getting to a point, by the way, that it is almost anybody would be better than JB if he's not going to change things, if he's not going to stagger the minutes of the guards, if he's not going to address the obvious confidence issues Darius is having on top of the physical issues he's having. I want JB to win because, quite frankly, changing coaches is risk. We saw that with uh, uh, we saw that with uh, Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee. But most of the time in the NBA, it actually is necessary. I feel better now. Feel a little bit better. Had a good jousting session. Look forward to uh, JB Bickerstaff apologies across the station while I'm out the next couple days. I did see. I'm now just taking shots. I don't, I got 30 minutes left in the show, and then I'm you, I'm like Magic Johnson in LA. I'm not gonna be here for until uh, next Thursday. So I am a little bit of a loose cannon right now. But my favorite thing I saw on social media leading into the combine was Dan Devine, who we had. I think it was earlier this week. Could have been. Could have been late last week. Uh, Yahoo Sports senior NBA writer who uh, who tweeted out, there's a lot of reasons I wouldn't be a good scout or GM, but there's one I will fall in love with. But Sorry, but one is that I will fall in love with a cool name no matter what. If Chop Robinson winds up actually being good, well, that's a bonus. I was drafting him regardless because the name Chop doesn't come around that often. I actually have to tell on myself, now that I've just blasted JB and the Cavs to bejesus, hashtag let him know. Now that I've done that, I will have to tell on myself, young Nick Wilson, and we're talking like teenage Nick Wilson, used to have a take that I would like look at a player's name, and if the, the name was unusual or didn't sound like an NBA player or an NFL player, I would just discard that player being a, 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 having a chance in, in the association or the uh, the league. For instance, I knew Sagana Jop was going to be bad at basketball and was going to be a wasted top 10 pick when I saw that his name was Sagana Jop. And it's not the Jop part of it. It's the Sagana. I'm like, no one, like, I, I get it. Shaquille O'Neal, cool name, kooky name. Different than even Patrick Ewing. Different, I mean, there, man, there's a lot of centers with interesting names. Artis Gilmore, I was just thinking about this. Different than Brad Doherty. Brad Doherty, very normal name. Brad Doherty, I was two, but Brad Doherty I knew as a two-year-old. That's a solid name. Sagana Jop, Sagana, no. No. That guy's not hitting a, a game seven winning shot from the, uh, or, or a sky hook to win the NBA Finals. He's not. He's not leading a team in scoring. I knew that. Now, I have my weaknesses on this theory. For instance, if you have a cool name, it it did make me like like you a little bit more. Like Trajan Langdon out of Duke. I was like, I've never heard of a Trajan before. He's from Alaska. This is going to work. So again, to this is a, a the uh, the eye of the beholder here. Some people might say Trajan Langdon weird name. I looked at it, thought it was going to be working out. So I think Dan Devine brings up a really interesting point about whether an unusual name makes you feel better or worse about uh, a player's uh, ability. For instance, and this is a nickname, um, Kool-Aid McKinstry. I mean, again, I don't think Kool-Aid is his his given name. If it is, 
it's even more suspect. But like, outside of the Kool-Aid man, who all of a sudden is going to be breaking down coverage and be like, man, Kool-Aid's got it on lock tonight. This is the Kool-Aid. This is, this is his moment. That's an elite player, Kool-Aid. I want to believe in it. But 12-year-old Nick Wilson would be like, uh, Kool-Aid? Is that his Christian name? Is that his, uh, uh, is that his government name? Because if it's his government name, he's out. Nicknames, it gets hairy. Guys, 28-year-old Nick Wilson knew Barkevius Mingo wasn't a workout. His real name is Barkevius, and his nickname was Kiki. It's just not going to – that's not a thing. So I want to know, 216-474-0092, if you have any weird name theories. Because I am like Dan Devine. There are guys that I automatically would discount when I was younger because of their name, Sagana Jop. Please stand up and then sit down because you were not very good in the NBA. And then there will be guys that I went to bat for. I'm like, Trajan Langdon went to Duke. Trajan Langdon's from Alaska. He's a great three-point shooter. Of course he's going to be great. He was not great. Uh, Future NBA GM, by the way, Trajan Langdon. Kayla, you seem to be chomping at the bit here. When you said the Kool-Aid one, it made me think of Juice Scruggs from the Texans. Oh, that's a great name. Well, and then I looked it up and I found out Juice is just a nickname and his real name is Frederick. And Does that make it better, by the way? I think it. I think a nickname makes it better. Like if Kool-Aid is Kool-Aid McKinstry's nickname, I think we're good. No, for if that's sure his, If that's his government name, then we got a problem. So Juice Scruggs being Frederick Scruggs and then being like, no, 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 the name is Juice, as long as he didn't self-apply the nickname, which is now the other modifier... As long as somebody else gave him the Juice nickname, we're okay. 